And um, what I'll do is just record a few minutes and then, um, well, actually, I don't think we really need to test it. Zoom has never let me down before. Yeah, so. I can hear you. Every, it, looks, it looks good on my end. Cool. So I think this will be episode number six. Nice. So the, the, the podcast name is sort of a placeholder right now. You know, Nick White does a podcast and I don't really have intros and outros recorded yet, but uh, we'll get that eventually. So Yeah, I get that. could be something like Nicked. Nicked. Uh, something kitschy. Yeah. Well, I really like, um, uh, what's the name of your podcast again? Fox. The Fox Den. The Fox Den. Yeah. Yeah. Clever. Thanks. Well, clever like a fox. It's it, the thing is, there's a few other. I think there's like two other podcasts that have the same name as mine. So whenever I share it, I just share the full link. Yeah. Um, and mine has my logo on it that I made in Adobe Spark. It's the gold and teal fox. But I yeah. may end up renaming it. Um, we'll see. Because I thought, well, I'm just going to keep the same name, even if there's a few others. But now it's like that. It's ridiculous. There's, there's some other YouTube channels named the Fox Den. Oh, okay. um, you can change it, it slightly. You could be like into the Fox Den. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking something like that. I've got some ideas, so we'll see. Um, but so um, yeah. yesterday we had a really good talk. I mean, like. I wasn't really planning for it to go that long, but we did it basically an hour on the phone. Oh, really? That flew yeah. by. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I took a few notes on my phone and put them in my computer here too of stuff we, we discussed. Um, as it, a lot of it was biotech. So. Yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> that's okay. Hey, it's awesome stuff. So that so, was nice. um, Hmm. I'm trying to think where, where do you think we should start? Where should we jump in? Well, I think we should jump in when it comes to like my take on Rebus and what I can offer on that and the Orgone stuff. So, cause that's kind so of before my... we jump into that. Sure. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, Jeremy and um, sort of your backgrounds and, you know, the main things that you like covering on your podcast. And then uh, we'll go from there and, and start talking about sort of where our interests overlap. Yeah, that's totally fine. I, I would love to do that. So I have a background in psychology, specifically traumatology. So I have a master's degree in mental health therapy and I'm licensed as a um, mental health therapist and I'm out of Colorado right now. So I'm in, in this state and you can, it's kind of like a state licensure thing. You have to be licensed in whatever state you're going to practice. So um, my big theoretical modality that I use is called EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's an awesome therapy that's been receiving a lot of study in the past few decades. So it's only about 30 years old, which is you know chronologically a few decades but in, in terms of psychotherapies like i don't know psychodynamic psychoanalytic therapies it's not that old so i've been overlapping on twitter a lot with different thinkers and philosophers who study the kind of stuff that you talk about in your podcast about um, the effects of trauma on the body how to alleviate that and i won't go too far into that in my intro here but 
that's, I do that kind of work with clients on a daily basis where we alleviate some of these uh, memories through feeling them, them go away through things like that. Right. So EMDR, like the eye movement, it's funny you were talking about um, the predictive processing model, the, the predictive coding models of cognition and, and eye movement. They were studied in eye movement first that the, well, eye function, excuse me, perception, like the RAO studies, the RAL. So you know what I'm talking about. So I'll, we can link to it, but the okay. early predictive coding model stuff had to do with tracking perception and eye movement. And so it was only a matter of time until therapy involving the eyes started to get that kind of attention. Gotcha. Um, my podcast, so that's kind of my scientific and theoretical background is I've been doing applied trauma therapy with clients and then theorizing and writing about it on my own time. And, and um, just for people that don't know, EMDR stands for? Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And reprocessing. And the yeah, process the, is, is um, do you want to talk a little bit about what actually happens in that sort of therapy? I do. I absolutely do. Do we want to save that for our, cause that really hooks into. That'll be, that'll be more detailed. Yeah, we can save sure. that. For, because for it, and it's, it's great because with EMDR, you can get as detailed as you want or you can leave it. You can, there's kind of like that five levels of complexity models. Right. That, exactly. They are like your YouTube videos on that. where like, so they'll have somebody explain quantum mechanics like to a, a five-year-old and then go all the way up to like a grad student level. It's pretty interesting. But so my podcast started as a way to, interact and kind of cross pollinate with different thinkers and just personalities. It's kind of morphed into now I interview a lot of people who have any interest in psychology or advocacy. So two of my recent guests, one of them was a comedian who um, is a really big proponent of self-help and mm. she talked about Tara Brock, who's a great mindfulness instructor and coach author uh who does a lot of stuff and we talked we had more of a humorous bent to it uh and then a previous guest was a, a pretty semi-famous youtuber who does a lot of videos on cult and multi-level marketing psychology which for anyone out there multi-level marketing is kind of a soft term for pyramid schemes Ah, okay. Network marketing is another term. So it basically means selling to your friends on Facebook and moving a lot of product that you had to buy as a starter kit. So draw your own inferences there, but there's a lot of companies now that sell that way. Uh, and people can, can be taught that it's a way to be your own business person. And so people can get hooked. If you're naive to that sort of that model and the exponential irrationality of it and how like you have to sell you'd have to have like a downline of 600 people like there's there's exponential models of it it's like why it doesn't work because there's not enough people in the right. world for that model to work but anyway so that was a recent episode and then uh we had i had on a guest who does a lot of videos about female predators who often are school teachers right who, who are yeah getting... I, I i read something maybe it was a synopsis of one of your podcasts but it was it was talking to about how female sexual predators tend to go for uh, much younger men. And a lot of times they happen to be school teachers. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was with one of my guests and it was a really good conversation because often what I'll do is I'll, I, I actually enjoy internet culture and I enjoy watching people on YouTube. So that helps. 
So I'll see someone who has a channel and they'll actually ask a question or say, well, I don't know why the reason for this is. And I'll be thinking, I'll be like listening in the background or eating while watching something. And then I'll think I've got an answer for that. And so I'll sometimes outreach the content creators and say, Hey, do you want to, do you want to have a, you want to interview? You know, I could ask you some stuff and then we can talk about the reasons for some of this stuff together. And they're usually pretty awesome about it. That's pretty kind receptive. Of the, Cause I, that's yeah. a good question. Maybe we can talk a little bit more offline, but um, yeah, I'm always sure. looking for new guests. Yeah. And I don't want it to just be indie thinker people. Although that's been who most of my guests have been just because Everyone sure. on there is super interesting and, and comes from wildly different backgrounds. But That's eventually, you know, I want to push more and have some some episodes that are focused like specifically on synthetic biology and have some people that I work with to to talk about the science really technically. Yeah. And also, uh, for the internet culture, I mean, I'm right there with you, man. It's it's uh, it can be cringy at times, but it's it's definitely interesting. And, and, uh, well, yeah, it can be. And there's like, it depends on what kind of nook you're going into. So for me, the Reddit, the phenomena of the Reddit content farm channels that are nameless and faceless, where it'll be like a name that just, I don't want to even throw any out there and it sound like I'm throwing shade because I'm not, I really enjoy those, but they'll be they like repurpose Reddit threads as like, yeah, a, have you ever seen, I'll send you some links, man, but I don't want you to go too far yeah. down there. It's addictive, but they'll read. They'll, they'll, they'll they, YouTube algorithms. Like if you click on one, it'll just paste your entire feed with them. It'll be like a thread that'll be like, usually they're sort of clickbaity. It'll be like, you know, what's the, you know, sluttiest thing you've ever done. And then it'll just be like a whole thread of people talking about, you know, their college experiences or something. Yeah. Like essentially. That, yeah. Or, Sometimes they're like horror based, like what's the scariest or most unexplainable thing yeah. you've ever had happen. I like that. Those. That can be, that can be actually very creepy. Yeah. I like those. So, uh, r slash therapy is a board where people will ask questions and I've started getting on there. I know I mentioned that in our phone call yesterday. Um, I enjoy seeing people's questions and answering them. What I'll usually do, I've, and this is what, like, this is a very new thing for me. I will, go in and answer the question and then make a video explaining it and like paste the question and then my answer. Um, I love that because you filter for questions and topics that people are interested in. Yeah. And um, for a long time, I've wanted to do more videos on like nootropics and supplements. I don't know if you know, but I don't know if I mentioned yesterday, but one of my, I have a side hustle. Uh, like e-commerce business called Flux Odyssey that, that sells a, a cognitive supplement. Okay, cool. So the first one is just called Golden Hour. It's like very, very basic. Um, right. Like safe, but effective. I'd give it to my grandmother. It's it's like mostly adaptogens. But yeah. I've been doing this on and off for like four years. I've, I have a background in biochemistry. So obviously I'm also interested in the more like gray area, like actual nootropics that are from like Russia. And like, I can just show you, I got these uh, interesting boxes with the, uh, the Russian markings and you know, Ooh. Like pay for, uh, pay for them with Bitcoin and stuff like that. Very, very cool stuff. <laughs> Definitely a weird hobby, but I'm into it. Well, I think nootropics are pretty cool. Um, I am definitely an enthusiast. I just don't, I try to be careful. I don't know, like with side effects. I'm a bit of a caffeine junkie, to be honest with you. And that's, Same. yeah. I, I, I got an espresso maker that like, 
it's one that you actually pack down and and click in best christmas present i've gotten in the last 10 years and That's what that replaced cool. was the stovetop the um you know what i'm talking about the like they're like metal screw top ones that go right onto the burner and they push yeah. through the um the little uh nespresso thing so yeah that's pretty awesome yeah neat uh so yeah we'll we can we can talk about that i mean for, for my profession is what you make it and so that's one interesting thing is you can you can apply therapeutic ways of thinking and, and heuristics to a lot and so the cross pollination of uh my serious theoretical side with online culture mm-hmm. and phenomena that i'm seeing it, the, the the possibilities are are just about literally endless just virtually um, and so that's, that, that's one of the good things about my job. And it's also for, for people who may not be as high in consciousness or don't want to, don't, don't really have a lot of ambition for it. Like that, that can be a curse too. It's like, well, what do I do with this now? Well, you, you, you kind of have to pave your own road and you can look for inspiration. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hit me over the head. The more, the more hobbies and things you're interested in as a therapist, the more opportunities there are to, in, to um, influence whatever that field or, or interpret through the lens right. of traumatology and uh, somatic psychotherapy, which, gosh, the applications to even your, your, the two podcasts of yours that I'm thinking of in particular is just, it, it, it's obvious in nature. I mean, the orgone therapy stuff, which is interesting. And then just rebus that, um, that paper about breaking down the barriers to new ideas. Like it's so very relevant. I love that paper because they yeah. apply a free energy landscape to consciousness. Yes. And as a biochemist, I'm constantly using like the, like the energy landscape metaphors, like everywhere, like where they're yeah. not needed. I'll be like, you know, trying to go out to dinner with a girl I'm dating and she'll be like, where do you want to go? And I'm like, let me decide so I can lower the energy barrier to this choice for, for like, just like in context that make no sense. But um, uh, yeah, that was a really fun uh, podcast with sustainable yeah. reason and, yeah. uh, and the orgone theory with, uh, with uh, Matt, I think. Yeah, Matt. Yeah. So um this is sort of a weird side note, but have you ever heard, since you're really into internet culture and uh, it sounded like you might be interested in sort of like horror Reddit threads, uh-huh. have you ever heard of um, SCP? Security yes, I have. Protect? I oh, think I you absolutely would love, have. if you haven't already read them, the anti-memetic division tales. Uh-huh. It's all of the SCPs that are, they're not memetic, they're anti-memetic. They're, they have like self-censoring properties and like make you forget them. And the, the, the list of stories are my favorite on the entire website. Um, probably the creepiest, you know, quote unquote monsters on that entire website are, they're like concepts that can kill you, but you also can't look at them directly because they'll make you forget. Super fucking weird. Um, definitely yeah. check that out if you get a chance. Yes. The Secure Contain Protect Foundations, so for anyone out there that hasn't heard of it, it's like a, it, you know what it's like? It's like an alternate reality game because you go through and a lot of it yeah. is redact, redacted. So the most famous one 
I think maybe even got a computer video game, but it, so the, the, the setup is like in the universe, there's really dangerous monsters or objects that need yeah. like quarantining and securing. And there's a foundation with like sort of unlimited resources and money that sort of supersedes the government and that sort of host. It'd be like men in black, but if men in black were like quarantining aliens that were super. Yeah. And the famous yeah. one was this statue that if you looked at it and you blinked, it would like move really fast and like snap your neck. <laughs> so they had to use uh, like personnel to like stare at it and nobody would blink at the same time so they could like move it and keep it in one place. Um, that's one famous one. There's, there's some other ones. And obviously there's like sort of meme silly ones too that aren't that scary. But, uh, the the one that I thought was interesting in particular, I mean, there's a few, but one stuck out to me is SCP-002, uh, The Living Room. The one that, the okay, so the one is um, about a room that is alive, but will look like just a normal apartment room. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea of just the, the banality of something commonplace that then takes on this horrifying uh, dread and it's a quiet dread because it's not like a zombie yeah. running at you. It's a, it's a place like we have these nouns, like a person, place or thing is a noun. Well, this is a place. How often do you hear about a place as a horror subject? You don't really, it's usually. And I love that they play with objects that you take for, they do, they do cosmic horror really well which you can't really yeah. turn into film and right. read a lot of like book horror. So this is yeah. sort of my, my only entry point into weird, either like existential horror or, or like cosmic horror or turning an everyday object into like, why would I ever be terrified of my coffee mug? And then you read some random SCP entry and you're like, fuck all coffee mugs. They're terrifying. Right? Like, you, yeah, you apply the sense of dread to. There's also one SCP zero thirty three about a number that's dangerous. That if you write it down, yeah. And that to me again, that the cosmic horror. So the color out of space is a pretty good cosmic horror movie, and it's I saw it a few weeks ago. Obviously, a few weeks ago when theaters were still open, um, and it has Nicholas Cage in it and he hams it up like a mother, but I mean, he's going to, he, that's, Oh, is that the one called knowing or is it, is it, uh, there's one with Jim Carrey called 23. No, the number 23, both of those are kind of derided as silly, which I have a heart for silly type movies, but no, this one is called the color out of space and it's based on Lovecraft story. So it's done very well. And it's cosmic horror. It's extremely recent. I mean, it came out this year, I think in January. Wow, okay. It came out earlier and it was just shown in the limited release later. But I highly recommend it. I don't want to spoil anything. But sure. there's some elements to it of body horror. See, the thing is with cosmic horror, you almost invariably have to resort to some body horror to display it. Because that's the only thing that we have as an analog, as living beings to cosmic heart, like it inevitably turns into something that's horrifying and grotesque to look at. It's like, well, how so we cosmic horror is really hard to, yeah. it's hard to write because the idea of cosmic horror is something that's like 
it's you know super massive that's not quite perceivable to the human mind and right. so the, if if you're reading lovecraft he it the the description sort of trail off where it, where it just describes how ineffable it is and that's hard to translate to the scene uh to the not the scene to the to the to the screen visual um yeah visually but one that did it really well i don't know if you saw this movie annihilation I have not, you know what? I need to watch it. I've, I've heard such good things about it. I had to sit and think about it for a little bit. Cause when I was done watching it, I was like, I like that I've never seen this movie before. Like a lot of right. times you see a movie, you're like, I've seen this 80 times, but yeah, I like that they tried to, there was parts that I didn't like, but I think overall it was done really well. And I won't yeah. spoil anything for you, but um, there are elements of body horror but there right. are elements of the cosmic horror where it's like no one can quite explain what this thing is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, so this has been a fun tangent, but, um, thank you for giving me some stuff to check out. I'm definitely gonna have a lot of time on my hands now that we're in. Uh, oh, I don't mind. Yeah, no, that's my, that's kind of one of my realms. Um, which is another interesting thing is there's, there's a lot of therapists who have somewhat of a squeamish sensibility um, on, on certain things. And I kind of, I, I think that that's totally fine. I don't judge at all. I myself enjoy looking into kind of the recesses of what we can handle because I think horror and trauma are extremely related. They're not exactly synonymous, but they're pretty damn close. They're pretty analogous in a lot of ways. Like trauma is really the horror of discovering that your presuppositions were wrong. At yes. least in one instance, right? Like in a car wreck, like, oh my gosh, I can't trust drive. I can't trust roads to keep me safe. So something very simple there that's not triggering or absolutely horrifying, right? It's like there's some horrifying car crashes, but it's not like sexual abuse or anything like that. One of that. the most horrifying things I ever heard. I actually got EMT training, um, so uh, I took a break from college the first time I went because it was like ungodly expensive. I didn't know what, the, what I wanted to do with my life. And I got EMT training and we were trained by actual, you know, people in the profession. One of this, one, this one guy was like 54, been doing it for decades. And right. he talked about motorcycle accidents. And he said, don't drive motorcycles unless you understand the risks involved. Uh, they're death traps and you will crash. And he talked about how he went on to like a on site to a really bad um, motorcycle accident and people who are squeamish can skip ahead right now, but he went and um, he found uh, the cyclist uh, lying on the pavement and he said, Oh, that's funny. He has his helmet on backwards. No. <laughs> he didn't have it on backwards. Yeah. So um that definitely sort of freaked me out for for all of my dreams of wanting a a motorcycle, and my mom's a urologist and she's like super terrified of trampolines because she's seen so many kids like break their necks on trampolines that she like prohibited me from ever going on a trampoline as a kid. So I've only yeah. done trampolining, you know, now that I'm once I've grown older than eighteen, which is kind of interesting. But yeah. Um, how, well, it, how long have you been doing ther uh, clinical therapy? Like how long have you been taking clients? I went straight through college and grad school right after it. Okay. I'm doing 
like I've been doing it for about five years. So it's, it's been like, I just trucked right through. And there's way, see, here's the deal. There's some people like if you want to, if you're naturally empathic or you have a really good handle on uh, any kind of neuroscience stuff or how the brain works or trauma, preferably all the above. um, It's a good second start career for people who maybe haven't been out there and uh, haven't like, they've been out there doing stuff and they want to, they want to get something more meaning, right? That's often a reason why people come into it as a second career. If you have a lot, if you have some unique technical expertise, like my supervisor does, like he was in search and rescue stuff and that gives him an amazing ability to think about things in the heat of the moment that other people might not be able to. Um, Or if you're just really, you're really passionate about helping people find a lot of people come into it as a second career choice is what I'm saying. And some people go through, I, I know a few who were really young who went to grad school. Now here's the deal with that. Graduating and becoming a therapist when you're not, when you're in your mid twenties, you better have some technical skill to back it up because you certainly don't have, unless you have an unbelievably unique life story, right? You certainly don't have the clout to put it in blunt terms or the ex- the the experience to put it in. Blunt I was just going to ask you, is it, is your age a, um, uh, like a factor when you're taking on clients that might be older than you? That's a great question. So it hasn't been for me. I can't even think of one time when it has been, I can think of times where there've been some, like remarks here and there and they were playful from clients. And so I don't even really encode that stuff as much in my memory because I don't take it offensively. But here's why though. Here's why I think it's never been an issue. And it's kind of the the nature of the beast when you're a younger therapist. You have to lean on your methodologies and your actual kind of emotional, like your, your not just emotional maturity because that's, you might not even have that all the time in your outside life, but you have to lean on your technical expertise. It's like, if you are a new mechanic, okay, mm-hmm. you need to be really aware of, of, of how cars work and things if you don't have experience. So it's a very low sort of metaphor. It doesn't really work. If you're a doctor and you're young, you're like a prodigy, then if somebody's your first patient or maybe your 10th patient, they are going to be more comfortable knowing that you were the top of your class and you really know what you're doing. And it's, it's like you have the technical expertise. So what I'm saying is my field is not one that's often thought of as very technical. And one of the reasons I fell into EMDR is because I wanted to know stuff that worked. I wanted to know what actually would help people as a methodology and not just an overall general approach, like empathic listening. That's, that's just out of the gate. You have to have that. But in my opinion, it's not sufficient, especially for anything beyond some very mild depression and anxiety. You need stuff that's technical. So my age hasn't been an issue because I've leaned heavily in initial sessions with clients, telling them, here's what I do. Here's how we know it works. This is what I offer. Any questions? How do you see this helping you? Do you think we would work well together? And that, that frames the conversation in a way where it's not a matter of, anything 
it's, it's a matter of what I, how now I can say I've been doing it a while and that I've had hundreds of clients, which is the, the truth. I didn't start saying that till it was true, but I've seen EMDR work. And so now, I mean, it's exponential growth when you have something that works, like the experience counts more in my opinion, yeah, yeah. work over and over and over again with like horrifically complex PTSD. If it'll work for that, it'll work for anything. And that's what that's, that's really important is like, you know, like everything with psychology, even the best methods are not going to be universal and work for everybody. But I like, I like therapies that rely uh, on more technical and, and it's not just talk therapy. I think that there, there needs to be a third modality between like talk therapy, um, chemicals, for lack of a better term. And then the third modality is something that is, I mean, if you think about EMDR, it's sort of like a brain computer interface. It's not it a very like, um, what's a good word? Uh, not detailed. But I mean, it's not an EEG machine, but, but you are using a machine to interact with the brain in a specific way. And you're trying to get it to a like specific state. I'm sure if you put an EEG machine on someone who's doing EMDR, you would find that their, their brain patterns are changing from. Well, we've done that. that that's been done. Not me, but therapy, the, the um, psychological community has done that. And some of the, the recent research from like the past half a decade from like 2016, 2017, no, more, I'm thinking 2017, 2018 EEG studies were done that showed that during EMDR, delta waves are more prominent and it's, and it's statistically relevant and it looks like slow wave sleep. And during slow wave sleep, we know, okay, that people's memories are pliable to being reconsolidated. So in layman's terms, changed put into a different form. I think a lot of people who don't know about this stuff would be terrified to learn how malleable their memory really is. Well, yeah, Elizabeth Loftus's studies, I learned about an undergrad. And it's like, if you, one of the big things is if you, if you know you want to be a therapist, a psychology undergrad degree is a relatively good investment. If you need I mean, if you're really self-motivated and you, you're one of those people that really wants to optimize, I mean, get an undergraduate in computer stuff and study psychology in your off time, that's fine if you love it that much. Some people, I mean, I have an undergrad in psychology and I never even questioned that I wanted to go further with it. But um, a lot of what I learned in those four years was just how the mind works and I wasn't mm -hmm. able to do anything with it yet because you're not responsible enough with just that degree to go out there and literally change minds. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's, it, I mean, I don't want to get into, you know, cringy Spider-Man, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, you but know, if you, if you have a, you know, even regular doctors have the Hippocratic Oath, I don't, I would say that therapists have an even, you know, a higher uh, Hippocratic Oath because, you know, you screw up the body, that's, that's bad. You know, you could, misset someone's bone or something and that's painful but right i feel like if you're screwing with someone's mind that's uh somehow more sacrosanct yeah i agree with sense. that completely yeah so a lot of so bad talk I, I say this all the time i've said it to guests i say it on twitter i say it wherever i am really when it's contextually appropriate 
Um, bad therapy is worse than no therapy. Because, I heard this in one of your podcasts. And yeah, that it really is. struck me. Well, and so people, like when you understand that you start to formulate certain priors, we could get into that predictive coding model of if your therapist, so you're, you're automatically going to be in more of a suggestible state in a therapist's office. Um, you're going to be more open and receptive. And so your sort of mimetic philosophical barriers are down right. in more of a way than it would be at going to coffee with somebody from Tinder. So if you receive bad information when you're in that state, it's going to do more harm. And so I've had clients who were told horrible things by therapists who, if I want to be generous, which I will for now, we can say the therapists were, were poorly aware of themselves, had a lack of self-awareness and maybe said something that they didn't think out completely. I mean, you could say that there's some malevolence there, whatever. Don't ascribe to malevolence Yeah, can be ascribed to stupidity. Exactly. I mean, and that's what I would hope. But see, the thing is, then when you get people who have master's degrees and even PhDs, and you get at that level where there's still stupidity residing, you think, okay, well, this, there's something amiss here when it comes to people's own worldviews taking uh, precedence over what they're telling people. It's like, I had a client who was encouraged and of course, this is all non-HIPAA breaking stuff. It's very general. I've, I had a client who was encouraged to go to the therapist groups and the groups were unnecessary and they were like $200 a group session out of pocket, of course. And it was for like... Wait, wait, wait. wait. Yeah. Group that was cost money? Oh, yeah, yeah, dude. The group therapy. So a lot of therapists in private practice will only take private pay, which is a really nice word, really nice two words for no insurance, pay me in the hand. I don't want to deal with insurance. It's fine. I mean, people can make that decision. Life coaches do it all the time because insurance doesn't pay for that, which that industry is a mess. Um, To put that very generously, it's very predatory because there's no regulating boards to say what you can do and what you can't do as a life coach. So it's like shaman. You you get people who are like well-intentioned shamans who know what they're doing all the way to people who just want to make money and parlay their physical attractiveness or charisma into yep. sort of career, which gets into your podcast about being a good, a, a, being a leader requires you to know how to direct libidinal energy. And it's like a lot of life coaches are just directing people's libidinal energy in ways that people could do themselves if they t- learned it from a therapist. So anyway, on that tangent, there's a lot to go for, but um, group therapy, there's some predatory group groups out there that therapists are encouraging people to join just just to get the extra money and it's like well a group is really uh a good way to do that because you're you're one therapist and you're charging a lot of people 200 bucks a head 10 10 people it's for one hour grounds you know right so sometimes i I think that people work off incentives and if you're getting paid per session there's no incentive for you to stop the sessions yeah, be better to set it up such that outcomes paid people, right? Like if you take a lot of patients and the patients recover in some sort of way that's measurable, which is sort right. of hard to do, then you get paid. I, w- I would say that there's a big parallel between the life coaching therapy, sort of some shady practices and um, the, you know, quote unquote, recovery industry. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about that, but like South Florida, man, 
they were doing some real shady stuff until they got cracked down on where they were, you know, basically taking kids or young adults who had issues with addiction and nobody really knew what to do with them because it's not something you go to like a hospital for unless you like OD. And they were doing these crazy inpatient facilities charging like tens of thousands of dollars per week or month. And it was all like sort of an insurance scam where the people would pay out of pocket and the, re- the insurance would like reimburse them. That's awful. And then you would, spo- you know, people were supposed to graduate after a certain time, but they would always like keep them back. Or like you sort of heard horror stories of people. First of all, they would basically just send people to, to the free 12-step groups and then do a little talk therapy and then basically like give them living quarters. So they weren't really providing much other than like an apartment complex that, you know, had no drugs on it. But um, there would there would be people at like groups who would basically get paid commission to get people to come to certain halfway houses. And the halfway houses were like letting people do drugs on premise and then like fudging the like piss test results there's like i swear there's going to be a, a documentary that comes out at some point on this stuff because it's pretty scandalous yeah there probably there's a few i mean there's there's someone who claimed to be a um psychologist who would who listed like a school that just doesn't exist anymore and just conveniently can't provide any credentials so that's shady um, and I don't know who that was. I mean, I've, seen, I've heard of so many of these things. It's almost just at this point commonplace. But so this all goes back to your point of it's more sacrosanct. It's, it's, it should be considered worse to screw up with somebody's mind. But it's really not. And here's the reason. Here's, there's a few reasons. But here's where I think it comes in to you just said, okay, you should, it should be judged by outcome, not by session, not by session frequency. Okay, I agree with that. Now, here's where it gets dicey. You go to a doctor, you got a broken arm, they put a cast on, it heals wrong, you sue because they screwed it up and there's evidence. You get an x-ray and you see that it's screwed up, okay? You go to a therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, whatever, you get bad advice, you feel worse. You take the Beck depression inventory or the Beck anxiety inventory, it shows you're, you're doing worse, okay? Which are bullshit so, inventory, not bullshit, but like statistics are, are squishy in general, but then yes. they're also doing self-reporting and they're even yes. squishier. Yes, exactly. So what I was getting at though is the the only methods that we have now that we use, I'll, I'll caveat that, that we really use are self-report. And self-report is ridiculous because you can make your, if you hate your therapist, you can say that you don't feel better at all. And if you love your therapist and you're biased and you love them like a cult figure, even if you're not doing better, you'll feel guilty and say, well, I'm, I'm doing, I feel like I'm better. You want to make your therapist seem better. It's like, it's not like a broken arm where you go in and there's evidence that you've healed in your brain. Now here's where that gets, here's where I, why I said there's an asterisk there because people like, if you take any random inventory, like for fun, I I was, I used to date a girl and we were both, we were mutually, uh, uh, reinforcing types of crazy. This is when I was a young guy, 19. And, uh, you know, for kicks and giggles, we were taking like different inventories for different, you know, types of DSM-4 craziness because that's, yeah. we, you know, had fun on a random Saturday. Yeah. And uh, it's crazy how many things, like if you're just sort of like weird adolescent stage where there's a lot of mixed up feelings and stuff like that, it's crazy how many things you almost qualify for a diagnosis for. It'll be like, 
right. need seven out of these 13 things to be considered whatever BPD or, 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 or like OCD or something like that. Right. And instead of seven, you have like five or something like that. And you're like, wow, you know, I'm kind of close. And that's why I think that you've seen this rise of self-diagnosis on the internet, which is popular in certain communities. Uh, you know, I don't know how much time you spent on Tumblr when it was still popular, but like, you know, it was- I knew was enough to of, get the hell off of there. Oh God, yeah. I mean, once they removed the porn, there was no point being on there, in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, they had, a, I, I, they had, you know, some some good pages. Very uh, very niche interests. Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing, the internet echo chamber. But you're right. So look, you've you've just taken and exploded the conversation even bigger. So the very essence of diagnostic criteria. Now we've taken into that. I was just going to say it's difficult to prove that someone's better or not mentally in any expedition expeditious sort of easy to conduct way. But what you're saying now is what I get into with clients who are very conscientious and who worry about disorders is we talk about, well, what separates a one week, um, what separates 13 days of sadness from clinical depression? One day, 14 days have to be. Six guys in a room decided that two weeks was the, I mean, I stole that from your podcast. I don't remember which episode, but like, yeah, the, the cutoffs for this stuff is really crazy. I, it's more helpful yes. to think of this stuff as a spectrum. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, however you feel about them, Jordan Peterson made a, made a great point in, in one of his uh, classes, I think the personality class, where he talks about people that are like tend to be more neurotic or, or versus conscientious or whatever. He's like, yeah, if your kid dies and you're feeling depressed for more than two weeks, that makes sense. You're supposed to be depressed at that. Like that's not a clinical depression that, but like if things in your life are going reasonably well and you are, you know, anhedonic and, and, and like you can't, you know, you can feel depression even though your life is rainbows and butterflies. That sounds more like a predisposition to underproducing serotonin. Right, exactly. Look, as a scientist, anything that's self-reporting, I just treat as bullshit. There has to be a way where you're measuring levels of neurotransmitters in vivo, somehow in the magical future of, of technology, or, or, or being able to take pictures of the brain in such a way where you're like, yeah, you're not getting enough oxygen flow to this, that, or measuring... Um, hippocampal neurogenesis which is another thing i'm very interested in because i think our model yeah the hippocampus is really a big part of emdr too we know that it helps with the like because the the amygdala being the fear center versus the hippocampus when which is more objective memory like that's a whole good rabbit trail anyway but one thing to your point um the the self-report thing is going to fall by the wayside i just don't know if it's going to be in five years or a decade. So Daniel Amen, the guy who does the SPECT scans, which that stands for something. It's like a spectral Positron, analysis. Positron. Yeah. Uh, Positron tomography stuff. Yeah. So here's the deal. He can use that to look at the forms of ADHD, to look at little subvariants, and he can see the differences. I've heard of this. You haven't? It's really good. I've heard there's a doctor who does either fMRIs or something to 
because he he breaks down ADD and ADHD into like seven different categories. Yeah, that's Daniel Amen, A M E N, like Amen. Yeah. So I took it because I was diagnosed with ADD a long time ago, and um, uh, I'll have to look at the different types. But they thought I had like two or three different types, sort of overlapping. But it's it was interesting. One of them involved of like if you have ADD but you take stimulants and they don't work, you have this particular type. So that fascinates me when you're starting connecting the high level stuff to the biochemical level and you can start distinguishing like phenotypes. So, um, no, it is, it's really cool. And so that's the front, those are the front lines. And so that's what we have like on the cutting bleeding edge. And now that eventually will probably be operationalized for depression and anxiety. And so you'll have not just self-report, but you'll have a sort of biochemical analysis to show what works. And so that's good news for the managed care system, for insurance, for, in my opinion, overall, it's a net good. What it's bad news for and what we need to be very careful about is human relations and think about it. If, if something can be done, if you can get EMDR from a person and the EMDR is what's working and you can take the person out of it, it's like, well, that's, that's something where insurance companies and businesses may want to just try to do a lot of neurotechnological, kind of neurobiological therapy and have the least bit of lead-in rapport building time. And so I think my profession that now is- That is very- the problem with psychiatrists. Who, by the uh, way, not yeah. to poop, not to poo-poo uh, your your field or fields that are adjacent. No, 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 no. Listen, it, insurance has of, done of it to them. Psychiatry has been um, so far behind the times and not updating their. They're stuck. They still think depression is like low levels of neurotransmitter in the brain, which, if it was true, SSRIs would work instantaneously. Right so now they're they're updating and they think it might have to do with hippocampal neurogenesis and there's yes. a lot of evidence for that and they're looking yeah. at these interesting compounds that boost that but like right it's like the people who chase for Alzheimer's they still think that it's this that it's the uh, the 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 fibrils of of proteins that are misfolded they're they like keep chasing this one target like a dog. And for 20 years, it hasn't resulted in any new therapies for Alzheimer's. Like they just need some new stuff, but the, the incentive structure, they're, they're sort of stuck and they can't pop out of it. So the thing with psychiatrists also, so those are all great points. One of the big things is clients will tell me that, cause I work at an agency and like for four days of the week and they, it's, it's very much a sort of system that's dictated by insurance where the therapist job is to have 50 minute sessions, 51 minutes. It's kind of the, the, the gold standard. That's what I do with clients. Even 45 minutes is considered the low end of a whole therapeutic hour. So some therapists really need their, their 15 minutes between clients if they've got like eight people in a day. And I get that. I, I like to give people 50 minutes. So it seems like that's, that's a lot closer to an hour. Um, but when you're doing the insurance game, you kind of do what they tell you, the, the insurance companies. So therapists get that long for a billing code. It's called a 219 billing code, the individual therapy session. Now, psychiatrists bill insurance differently 
where you get one hour session with a, with a psychiatrist. It's called a medication evaluation code. And I don't know what number that is. I could, it's, it's something you can easily look it up because it's like universal billing code stuff. And then you get from then on out with the same psychiatrist, you get 30 minute sessions that are the billable hour. And then sometimes psychiatrists will just do 15 minutes of that 30 minutes. It's like, yeah. how do you like the meds? Are they good? Are they bad? You want more? You want less? Buy. So, so not to get too personal, but like, no, please. Uh, yeah. So after college, I, so I dropped out of college the, like the first four weeks I went cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was like, I think it was like $56,000 a semester or something crazy. And I was like, I'm not sending my parents, you know, into bankruptcy if I'm not ready for this. So sure. Um, yeah. But I got diagnosed with ADD uh, and dysthymia there. And when I went back home, I started seeing a psychiatrist because I was like, I want to be healthy. And he was very good. You know, we talked, we tried to adjust medications for a long, long time. Um, I ended up sort of polypharmacy, way too many different things at once. But uh, I didn't see a psychiatrist again for many years. So uh, when I eventually went back to school uh, in Asheville, I was uh, 22 or tw 23, you know, I was, I, I had grown up. I had, I knew and had enough experience with my own uh, brain to sort of handle it on my own. But um, I was taking Wellbutrin at the time. I wasn't taking any stimulants and this was sort of a mildly stimulating antidepressant that's good for ADD. And um, I went to go see a, a psychiatrist because I wanted to know if there's anything better I could be taking. You know, I used to take Vyvanse, which helped me a lot when I was in school. Um, but there were some counterindications because they thought the dysthymia might be cyclothymia and it was a whole thing. So sure. I went, it took, they took two months for them to see me. I went, uh, the guy I think uh, had not read any part of my history. So I had to recount my entire life story in 15 minutes, which is always like a lung full. And, and you know, in like 15 or 30 minutes, he was like, how do you like the meds? And I was like, they're fine. But like, isn't there something better I could be taking? Or like, should I even be taking them if I feel fine? Should I come off of them? And he was like, I recommend no changes. 250 bucks, please. And I was like, I could have fucking Googled this for myself. Like, I, I you know, maybe it was just, a, you know, one, one bad story doesn't, doesn't, uh, whatever, incriminate the entire field of psychiatry. But I was just sort of disgusted by the whole process where it was like, yeah, you, you put a quarter in a slot machine and you get a random answer and you just feel sort of used and not. Well, so that's, hey, see, here's the thing though. It's like a chicken or the egg deal where you can kind of ask, did psychiatry allow itself? Did, did it move toward this because it moved away from the Freudian perspective? And now we can start, if you are ready, we can start really getting into the psychological meat of our conversation because this is a perfect pivot. Did psychiatry push for this by moving away from Freud and into CBT in a time-limited sort of medical paradigm, okay, and then insurance snatched it up and thought, wait a minute, you mean this is easier? And then the insurance and managed care company, that, that whole milieu further, we could say, um, exasperated or accelerated into this this realm we have now of here's your your insurance appointed 
15 minutes, use them wisely, see you in three months. It's like, which came first, psychiatry being colder and clinical or insurance companies exacerbating it? I think probably the pharmaceutical company is being like, these are the drugs you can bill for and we're going to make a lot of money. Exactly. And the thing is, it doesn't like antidepressants don't work that well for many people. It doesn't matter either which came first because it's a multivariate sort of construct that doesn't, that's going to defy any kind of easy explanation like any cultural movement does, but that's where we are. And it's usually not the, it's a systemic problem that it's and some psychiatrists play into it more where there are more you can tell about just giving drugs and don't really want to talk. And then on the flip side, I've had some psychiatrist colleagues who actually were trained in EMDR and loved uh, psychological methodologies and not just medicine, but they weren't able to really use those because the billing code wouldn't permit that amount of time. So you get the ones who want to push against it and who can't. So what you're starting to see is some fragmentation in the cracks in the cement, so to speak, the uh, the cracks in the pavement in this system. We'll see how it gets reevaluated and changes, but this all goes back to me saying as we have more empirically validated ways to measure trauma recovery, like with EMDR and because we scale it and it's still subjective, but it's a much better, like we use the subjective units of distress scale, SUD, which is a little better than just self-report because you get it in the physiology. And so like where do you feel in your body? Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll probably in the near future have like startle test income and outcome measures. Like if you've ever seen, have you seen both Blade Runner movies or either one of them? Yeah, I've saw both. I love both. So you get, I don't care. People say the second one, look, I don't, I think it was great. So I don't, I don't have the, like, for me, the matrix was the movie that like hit me when I was really young. That was really, yes. Blade Runner was a little before my time. So I don't same here the rosy tinted glasses. I love the second movie. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Well, so here's the deal. You get, you, you get the, the sort of like the Voight Kampf test. Okay. That tests yeah. whether somebody is a replicant or not. And it's very easy to like Google this or put it in YouTube and watch this section. And it's like, you see this entity get a bunch of questions about like seeing dead stuff or reacting like a human would react with empathy to whatever that is. It's like, well, this, this robot, this Android, this replicant does not. And so you get in the second movie, you get like a PTSD test for the replicant where like the Ryan Gosling's character has to answer all this stuff and not get derailed. And he has to say the words back like interlinked, interlinked. He has to say that a bunch. Interlinked within cells. Yes. And he can't be distracted by the imagery that gets conjured by really negative words. And so we're going to have stuff like that which is good on the, the one hand because it means that you've overcome your flashbacks or whatever negative symptoms of trauma. It's going to be bad on the end of anyone can deliver that and you can get it in just as bureaucratic a capsule as in those movies. So you kind of pick your poison. You get a nice hand-holding sort of non-bureaucratically enforced profession like we have now where it's like, oh, just milk your insurance. Um, or you get kind of a, we know this works, here you go. But then you kind of get, well, and I just thought of this. If the stuff works and you get it in a cold environment, but it works to help you get back out there and be more functional, well, then you'll be more social. And so you don't have to get your needs met socially through 
your therapist, which even saying those words sounds very bizarre to me because your therapist is supposed no. to be a safe space to do that. But if the but stuff people works. People become obsessed with their relationship with their therapist. Oh, they do. Of, of course they do. They can replace them as a father or mother figure or as a friend, a confidant. And like, it can be, it's a, it's a very easy relationship to abuse. And like, I, I mean, I know that like, if you, you know, supposedly we're not bureaucratic now, but yeah, I, I, I would say we, we are more bureaucratic than I would like for a system that, uh, you know, at least aspires to be, you know, pure, purely capitalistic. It's sort of in a weird space where if it went more to one way or the other, if it was more socialized or more purely capitalistic, it might be better. But it's sort of like a mermaid where you want a woman and it's a fish and it's a fish when you, when you want to, or you know what I'm talking about. I do. You're talking about it's kind of like a mixed animal. I mean, it's kind of like a, it, it, you've got this, this entity that was created out of a weird, unnatural synthesis of capitalism and socialism really because you get like insurance you still are paying for but there's a different foundation to it it's not as cutthroat as purely like you have to hustle for anything you get like you pay for insurance and it's kind of like a, a, a game where you pay for the amount of coverage you think you're going to need if you didn't use it oh well I mean, it's like you're deductible and things like that you get these it's like oil and water it's not mixing quite right we know it's not but what the hell else are we going to do and I leave that to audiences to decide because I'm not going to get that political. But that, that's why there's in so much. Mind, under- this, this is why I'm so fascinated with nootropics and supplements. To me, yeah. they're, op- they're open source medicine. They're right. over the counter. I don't need to see anyone. I can do my own research. And, you know, whatever. If you really believe in my body, my choice, which people talk about all the time for, for, for women in abortion, like uh, my body, my choice. I just have to get to go into my body. And that includes medication. So... Uh, in my mind, I think it would be a lot better if every compound was just sold. I mean, this is maybe be too, be, being a little too libertarian, but I, I personally would prefer it if, if most compounds were able to be purchased on the internet and whatever form and dosage you'd like. And if you weren't comfortable buying something, then you would go and talk to someone who could advise you what to get. But if you already knew what you wanted to try, and felt comfortable enough doing your own testing at home, like you don't need to go back and forth eight, nine times with a, with a psychiatrist to figure out whether you need 20 milligrams or 25 milligrams. That's something that most people are smart enough to do on their own. And like, uh, just like for certain people who know what they need to be prescribed because they've taken it before, and then try to get re-prescribed that. Like, I feel really bad for people that have pain problems, pain management problems with all this of course. Like, craziness about chasing down people who are trying to get pain pills. You know, it's like you see addicts everywhere when really this guy just like fell off a ladder and, and has back problems and, you know, can't get prescribed anything because whatever. So um, that was sort of a long tangent, but... Yeah, if if you had if you had the the pharmacy stuff sort of separated out in its own bucket, that I would prefer that to be a little more capitalistic and and uh, whatever non bureaucratic, and then sure. for seeing someone to to talk about and and do techniques like EMDR, that to me should be more socialized. That should be sure. 
you should build a relationship with someone. You, you, it, it, it shouldn't be through this weird rigmarole with insurance that always feels sort of greasy and slimy and uncomfortable. It should be, you know, they should just be paid. Yeah. Well, and so now you're getting into this sort of morass of what does the, like how much of a therapeutic relationship is necessary. It's very interesting. Uh, one of the people on Indie Thinkers did a, a little seminar about the word care and how in the past, the medical establishment, it was really bound up in a, a sort of model of palliative care and making things as comfortable for people as possible because there wasn't a, a there wasn't weren't a lot of cures and so it was kind of sad um but there you have it it was kind of it was more okay so his name was camillo i don't know his last name i talked to him camillo um uh fuck i can't but he's the south african doctor yeah i love this dude his yeah, I've only, i mean that, that one him. what i have a podcast with him okay well that's great i need to listen to that one but here's the here's the thing it's just it gets into what we mean by the word care and this, the imprecision of language. So, and that gets into like, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating stuff. One of the problems with, and here's kind of a pivot. One of the problems with cognitive behavior therapy is a lot of people who select into that camp, into that, that sort of mode for conducting therapy have a sort of stance, a sort of, um, we could say, personality bent or predisposition, if you like, kind of a temperament that's more kind of to the point, let's fix this, let's, either, let's talk about it and get over it. Um, put, you got to put in the work kind of attitude, right? Right. And so you get you get that that's kind of and other people will maybe pick a more Rogerian if you know Carl Rogers the kind of father of talk therapy besides Freud you get kind of that well how does it make you feel extreme which I think is just that's just passe I'm not really a huge fan of that I think you need both but I think CBT and Rogerian therapy are both polar opposites of the therapeutic continuum. And I think Freudian psychoanalysis is kind of the, curiously, it's like the synthesis, but it came first. So you had like, right. therapy was broken down into these constituent elements of the curative factors, like cognitive factors, and then emotional factors, where you have CBT is basically worksheets that involve questioning your core beliefs. Priors, yeah. Yeah, 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 which is fine, but it's not experiencing a reprioritization of your priors, which we've, the rebus, the whole relaxation of beliefs, you know, the acronym being rebus. It, it's funny because that includes both. It's the experiential reprocessing, which I think has to happen. Um, I think just cognitive stuff is great, but then what you're doing is you're saying, okay, so do this stuff, change the way you believe, and then go out into the world and now you do that, and but that's the real test. The real test is if you can do it in the world and make your belief system, if it's an adaptive belief system and it's practicable and applicable. And so as the therapist, it doesn't make sense to me to only sit and prep your client for the world and hope it goes well. 
I like EMDR because you look at those cognitions and you strip them bare and then you reprocess there and you say, okay, think about that negative stuff. Now tell me what you're noticing. Okay, now think about it again. And you actually desensitize it in the office. And so you have that. CBT is like trying to think your way out of depression. It's like pure Spock logic, like no emotional. Everything has been stripped away except for those stupid sheets where you're like, do you have unhelpful beliefs? Identify them and then change that. It's just, they don't deal with anything real. Well, and here's the problem. So what we know is, and I'm not, so I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, I'm going to steel man it, if you will. I'm going to say, I'm going to do the opposite of straw man. I'm going to say, um, CBT has a lot of empirical support to it. And CBT also has an element to it called behavioral activation. Okay. Now here's where it gets very interesting. So there's a whole therapy now called behavioral activation therapy, BAT. And I went to a training on it. And so CBT has an element of activating behavior. What does that mean? It means you do things in spite of your feelings and people often feel better because what they're doing is they're taking those prior beliefs, your priors, like you think you're going to do something and still feel shitty, right? But you do it and you feel better. And it shocks your brain's priors. It, it shocks the predictive coding there into, what, into revising and saying, wait a minute, okay, so I exercised and I got my heart rate up, heart rate up and I did feel better. Mm, there's something to that. And so then you do it over and over and you're not thinking your way out of a mood. You're doing your way out of a mood. And, and, and my, I really gotcha. hold this idea that it's, you can't always think your way out of a bad mood. You have to do your way out of it. And so try like the Sisyphean task of pushing the boulder up of, well, I'm just going to think better. Screw it. Why don't go out? Well, now, you know, <laughs> I want this podcast to be perennial, so I'm not going to reference too many current events. Okay. But you can still go out. Like you, you took a walk before this, right? You didn't have to go yeah. in a crowd of people to do that. You don't have to go in a crowd of people to do your coping skills. So do your coping skills in spite of your moods. That is always what I think of as therapy. I don't like to get bogged down in conversations that don't serve a purpose. And right. that's funny. I love to go on tangents. I love to, in my personal time, and on podcasts, talk about horror, talk about web culture, talk about stuff that's all over the place. Therapeutically, I don't like to. Yeah, I don't like to. You're doing. Yeah, yeah, I really don't like to waste their time saying, well, what if that's wrong? What if that's wrong? I want them to see that it's wrong. And I want to do it in a respectful way and not in an I told you so. It's going to be, let's try this. Let's have you now imagine this trauma while we're moving your eyes back and forth and you know you're in the room and let's just see what happens and you can always tell me to stop you can always put down the hand buzzers or I can stop moving my hand you know because we have the bilateral stimulation stuff but let's just do it yeah with appropriate consent and everything like that but let's see what happens and I mean the overwhelming majority of time people will recode their priors their prior beliefs they it will be outmoded they'll realize that thinking about something doesn't mean it's going to happen. And a good article for, for behavioral activation therapy uh, is called behavioral activation colon, the depression therapy you've likely never heard of. So someone who's really doing research on that is David Richards. So, and I can provide all the info. I mean, this is just, I'm looking at my kind of cheat sheet here for talking points for the, for the podcast. So I've got all this written down. There's the, and this gets into the top down versus bottom up therapy. And I am, one thing I want listeners, if they have to take one thing out of this, 
is I am totally a bottom-up therapy person. If you've been through trauma, you need bottom-up therapy. Okay, that's where Rebus comes in. Is you, it's a pharmacological thing that reorients your body's signals to your brain. It takes your brain and it, and it what you said, you used a metaphor saying it unfreezes ice, it melts it and then refreezes yeah. it. Yeah, I liked that because I think it's very, tactic, very tactile and tangible for people. And you can imagine your beliefs as this ice cube. It's like, well, did you know that it could be melted? And it doesn't have to be melted through just CB. You melt it. It's like CBT explains what to do with the ice when it melts, but you're not there while the client's melting it. It's like, okay. Yeah, I mean, it you wor- still yeah. need that. You need some heat to, to relax your priors. CBT doesn't relax your priors. It just was like, hypothetically, if you are able to relax your priors, it would be better instead of a belief that you, where you feel like a piece of shit all the time, that you're like, no, I deserve to feel good or something like that. But it never actually walks you through the process of doing that. I well, think. and so here... So here's the whole reason I went on that tangent um, about behavioral activation therapy is it actually comes from a CBT for God's sake. So CBT births essentially a, a therapy like that was part of it, but you're telling clients, here's what to do, chart your mood, go for a run, then chart your mood. So, ah, the scientific standby of baseline measurement intervention, and then another measurement. And so Again, the thing I don't like about that is you're not as a therapist there with them unless you're doing like some badass at home therapy running with them. And some people can pay for that, but that's usually not insurance. It's usually for people who paradoxically have the money and are functional enough or either inherited the money, we'll say, to actually pay for that. And so people who need the most probably can't afford it. And so you get into this whole thing of, well, EMDR is great because it's a virtual mental version of activating behavior like you can imagine what you wish you had done and so then we get into the libidinal energy stuff and the bound up movements the what we would call somatic discharging so discharging the feeling that you want to push away a sexual abuser or that you want to do stuff you couldn't back then and so what i love about wilhelm reich in your podcast with that with with matt was his his website is excessively uh, helpful. I mean, it's unbelievably documented. It's like he's got these essays, these treatises on Wilhelm Reich's departure from Freud and how Reich discussed that insight may resolve symptoms, not always, but that the uh, economic view, economical view of libido, and that you kind of have to discharge, like it's being bound up by things, would state that reenactment and kind of getting moving through the motions that were squelched is the way forward well that's ancient at this point that's like a, the, the the i mean in the medical terms it's ancient and so now we have evidence in this book that i really encourage you and le- readers to to skim if you can't read it it's very conversational it's called the body keeps the score and it's a book by a now famous psychiatrist named bessel van der kolk it's easier to look up his book than his name um he is an absolute maverick in the field. He looks like your quintessential Freudian, white-bearded, tweed-jacketed academic practitioner. He's excessively intelligent, and he talks about yoga and Tai Chi. He's right. not your hippie uncle telling you to do this stuff. He is the scientist with high conscientiousness who studied it. So he this talks goes about, back to, to suspended reason where he talks about top down versus bottom up. A hundred percent. One of his great uh, analogies where he's like, you know, during colonialism, you know, the Brits, whoever would come in 
and see this village doing something very strange. They would do uh, some sort of ritual that involved, uh, are you still there? It looks like uh, you're frozen. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I don't know why that broke up, but. Um, it says your bar, your, okay, your internet had a red, some red bars and now they're white bars, so I don't know, weird. Okay, but I heard everything you said, so it's a ritual that he didn't understand. So it would be some sort of like ritual to bring the rain and they ended up like throwing fish in a field or something. And the English were like, this is preposterous. You should get rid of this and use this like fertilizer. And it turns out that this was a ritual that evolved over hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. And there was something in the fish that helped the plants grow or something. And when they tried to disrupt it, it broke. So the, the fish field thing that I invented on the spot is a is an example of bottom-up intelligence or something that yeah. over time that's stable and improvement whereas the the colonialists coming in and be like well rationally plants need fertilizer and fertilizer you need some phosphate we're going to throw the phosphate on there and then it, it ended up breaking you know even though we like to consider ourselves very rational people um systems are really complicated and much easier to make a complicated system worse than to make it better so yeah, yeah, just going back to the, to the bottom up stuff. But uh, but I interrupted you on the on the Vanderkork Vanderkolk thing. Uh, what were you oh, saying about uh, about this this guy who seems very Freudian? So he uh, well, and he he compiles a, a so his book is very conversational, but it's very packed in research. So you have sort of some chapters of lit review that go over the different people, and Reich, I believe, is mentioned in there, and of course Pierre Genet was a big figure um, and, and a lot of the kind of proto Freudians, you know, Joseph Brewer who was studying hypnosis alongside Freud, you get a lot of these proto analytic figures. Okay. Who were very into this idea of resolving trauma through releasing tension, sort of this economic hydraulic right. model. So the economic model is also kind of the hydraulic model of libido, just meaning that life energy that it gets, it's like a hydraulic system uh, and it can be bound up and it can be, the hydraulic model? Like a hydraulic system, yeah. yeah like a, okay. exactly, like in a car, like in a pneumatic, in other words, too. So like th this sort of idea of this energy that moves through systems and, and different mechanisms. So anyway, Vanderkolk um, discovered uh, the utility of EMDR. He first thought it was bizarre on a top-down level to see like hand movement and then trauma recovery. And then he studied it and he, he, he offered it. He started giving it to people. And I think he, he noticed tapping. He was asking people to remember uh, PTSD and they would do like weird, like taps on their fingers or with like, a yes. Or something. So that's the, that's called emotional freedom techniques, EFT or tapping therapy. That is a whole school of thought based on the energy meridians in the body that are activated through acupuncture and acupressure so i give a lot of credence to that stuff when you hear terms like energy psychology you may at first i know i may at first think okay what are we getting into here is this a scam is this a way to get people who need help to spend a lot of money and go into bankruptcy no it actually is pretty effective a lot of it. i encourage people to come to their own conclusions on that um, some of the, the gestures and the motion, get, getting to some of the energy points can be extremely effective and there's been research on it. So 
it depends on how much you take it seriously, like that it's the exact sequence of spots that you hit in order because some people will say like you hit this spot, then this one, and you do are above the like eye and the points or something at or the what are they chakra the, points or the acupuncture points? There's a lot of overlap I, between these systems. There's a lot of overlap. And so that is harder for me to speak to because I don't know how, how like if each individual chakra point has been studied and one is more effective than the other. I think we're still kind of learning about that. Um, with EMDR, we have a little clearer idea and that's saying something considering there were so many competing theories on how it worked. I mean, there was a theory that it activated both hemispheres, which I was always kind of suspect of because, I mean, I think there's some, some research on it, but um, that it combines left and right process, hemispheric processing. That was a... I know but, what analogy I wanted to bring up. Please. Came when I was at the, um, the based mansion meetup, the Indie Thinker based mansion meetup, we were talking about all of these different fields. Like when you're on the cusp of what's known scientifically and you're trying to come up with something new, it's like people who studied alchemy. Alchemy morphed into chemistry. Absolutely. When it was still alchemy, there was a lot of mysticism around it and like not everything, there was stuff that worked, but the explanations were wrong or more like metaphorical, but right. it didn't turn into a science. And right. So, um, you know, we were talking about this. A lot of people are sort of like on these weird boundaries between two different fields that there's not really a lot of literature on. And so when they talk about this stuff, it doesn't sound like science. If you're an extremely skeptical materialist, you're like, this sounds like bullshit. I'm not, whatever. You're, you know, you're talking about quantum whatever to explain consciousness. It sounds like phony baloney. But uh, you can flip that from something that's just entirely negative and like, you know, you should be skeptical, but not so skeptical that you throw the baby off with the, with the bathwater or, or, or like you, you ruin the chance to explore something new. So the way right. that we contextualize this stuff was like, it's, it's not that you're being phony baloney or that you're, this is bad science. It's, it's alchemy. And so there are specific types of, of rules or practices you can do to be a better alchemist. And right. That was the way we made it more positive. So I like that EMDR seems to have come from evident from bottom up evidence that it worked first right people were recounting this ptsd and they were tapping or their eyes were moving in different ways and then someone was like what if you actually helped people do the tapping on their own or the eye movement on their own then they found that it was working and then they went back to the theory and tried to figure out why it was working it wasn't a priori like oh uh, we think that depression results from a lack of neurotransmitters. If we boost the amount of neurotransmitters in the brain, we'll cure depression. Let's design selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Yeah. So the trial and error nature of medical science is extremely disquieting and unsettling to people because it calls into question how effective stuff is. And so you get kind of this voluntary historical amnesia of because of how this stuff was discovered right because it it it's unsettling to think of just how much is up to chance um one thing to get into into this whole bottom-up movement 
that we're talking about. It, like there's an article I found that I recommend. Again, I can provide citation to it and everything called, I mean, not a journal article, but an actual journalistic article. Okay. Uh, Therapy's great, but I still need medication. So it's written by a female author who says that CBT techniques prove to be lesser tools for managing stress than her tried and true regimen of dance classes and long runs. So I took a note of that because somatic therapy and mindfulness and body therapy is really part of this third wave of therapy that we're, that we're in. Like the first wave was Freudian psychodynamics. And the second wave was behavior therapy and cognitive therapy out of that cognitive behavior therapy. Now it's this whole mindfulness transfusion of bottom up interventions into a dying profession, essentially of really a sort of what we would consider secular religion. So you get these ideas that you dissolve them enough. And it's like, well, why is CBT? CBT is basically a value system of what like you're, you have to say, why aren't these thoughts tenable? Why are you considering that they're untrue? Why isn't it good? Like, where do you get a tell us there? And very crafty clients will start to ask questions like, well, why is it wrong for me to be exploitative? Why is it wrong? There's no, there's no ethos, no ethic to, a sort it's of the, it's the practitioners or therapist's own personal ethos, right? It absolutely, is. Into, where is that coming from? Well, you could say the culture or whatever, yeah, this background they're coming from. But there's no you, you have to eventually get to some sort of solid bedrock of ethics, yeah. which is more philosophy than, than therapy. And, and yeah, it is. So, the good thing is when it comes to body somatic based psychotherapy. You can bypass some of that and say, okay, yeah. so when you're experiencing anxiety, here's what it looks like. There's no you ethics think. in yoga. Like there's sure. no like, should we do downward facing dog? Is that ethical? It's like, right. no, you just, right. you know, you, you do the stretch. Well, and so then it becomes kind of passing off the problem because we're now in a culture where people don't know where to get their ethics from. And that gets into a philosophical conversation. Uh, there's, a, there's a really cool article called Why CBT is Falling Out of Favor that I found. And favor is spelled the British way there with mm-hmm. a U. So this author, Alan Wheelis, who I'm going to get his book. I don't know what it's called because it just says he's an author who published a book arguing that Freudian analysis stopped working because America's character changed. So he makes this argument that essentially the Victorian era didn't have as, as big a vocabulary for emotions and so they yeah. had to figure those out and then they could operationalize whatever changes were needed, but that we now or, or excuse me, probably back then, maybe even, I mean, in, in the 1958, this dude wrote the book. So for God's sake, things have changed since then in multiple ways, exponential ways. But the idea that we now have a lot of access to our emotional states, but that we don't have the fortitude or resilience to make changes. So we've got kind of a flip problem. We've got the inverse problem. I think there's a lot of validity to that. I think people get scared out of their head and their therapist basically, though well-intentioned, can tell them to do more avoidance. Because you can kind of- Yeah, you can experience, you can avoid experiencing emotions, anything all the time with this little little sucker. Absolutely. And, and, And like the fact that no one's reading anymore means that like, 
you don't get a good example of uncomfortable emotional or, or philosophical problems that aren't really resolvable. Like I remember, I want to say two things because just to get back into the practical, what really helped me when I was struggling with a lot of this stuff was one, um, you mentioned you had a comedian on your podcast. I, I, I fucking love stand-up comedy and uh, I think they're saints and they should be let to do their craft in peace without anyone bothering them about bullshit about you can't say that you can't talk about that one of my favorites is maria bamford i love her and i don't know any other insane she i love her so much me Uh, too i'm really glad that you know who she is because most people when they say you know who's your favorite stand-up you know you you'll hear like george carlin and 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 prior and like they are good um and then a lot of girls now will 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 say their favorite comedian is like I don't know. I'm going to come off sounding really bad when I say this, but there's not really a lot of female stand-up comics that I listen to and really enjoy. Maybe it's just my particular taste, but one that I would say stands on her own and I don't have to preface with the fact like she's my favorite female comedian. Just say she's one of my favorite comedians has nothing to do with gender. It's Maria Bamford. She's She's good. Top five. Like, uh, and, and Anthony Jeselnik's one of mine too. You like Anthony? Dear God, do I? That guy's got a mouth on him. So if you like Anthony Jeselnik, there's a, 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 a fuck, I'm gonna fuck it up if he's Scottish or Irish. I think he's Scottish. Um, it's a little hard to understand around the accent, but has a very similar, like very dry, horrible, fucked up sense of humor called. Um, fuck, I'm gonna have to find his name. Yeah. While you're doing that. So Marie Bamford, the way I came across her is Frankie I, Boyle. Who? Frankie, you got, Frankie oh. Boyle. Ooh, yeah. I, I know who you're talking about. I, I'm not even like, yeah, yeah. And so Jimmy Carr is also another good UK comedian. One of his CDs is called the, the Last Days of Sodom, which is like Whew. the most fucked up story in the Bible. And so yeah. if, if that's the title of your album, like, you know, you're in for some shit. You are. He's a good one. Um, He's really quick on his feet with hecklers. I love that. Um, it's funny. Maria Bamford is one where I think she's a good illustration of how adolescent and just developmental trauma in general can, can be sublimated into something beautiful because you hear her acting out her mother in this uncanny, she sounds like this a lot of time. And then she starts talking just like her mom. And whoa, how is that voice coming out of her? She can do these female voices like she's speaking another language because it's not how she sounds. And so you get her acting out these ego states that she internalized. It's, It's very psychotherapeutic because you can see that she has, it's like a virtual program. She can act as her mother because she's so internalized this, this critical character and she's spitting it out and then responding to it in funny ways. But it's really a form of psychodrama that you're watching. It's so good and really surreal. It is. Um, like her, her show, the Maria Bamford show, when she had a really bad breakdown and dropped out of society and went back to her family, she did a YouTube video show with her like pugs. And to an audience of no one, she was just like being crazy in front of a camera and they're only like two or three minutes each episode, but they're hilarious. And like, 
terrifying and weird. And How did you find her? Because I want to see if we had a very similar experience with this. You know, I think I found her through Patrice O'Neill. Okay. He's another one of my favorite comics in a very different wheelhouse. He's very um, about like the relationships between men and women. There was, there was a, a show maybe in Canada where uh, Maria, they, they both did five minute sets and she was first and he was second. And I was like that, she was pretty funny. I'm going to go listen to more of her. I mean, right. I, cl- I just went into a YouTube rabbit hole where the first time I listened to her, I think I listened three hours nonstop of material because I was just like fucking blown away. So she's really funny. The, the way I found her was through a little show from the golden age of Adult Swim. I'm dubbing it that. Of okay. about 2006 through 2009. No, no, no. Let's say 2004 through 2009. A little show called Tim and Eric Awesome Show Great Job. Okay. Do you know that show? I've heard of Tim and Eric. The, the also, I don't know if I've seen any episodes. Well, their show, they had Maria Bamford on there, and she could ham it up in her absolutely bizarro world way of, like she had one on there about identifying cats by, their, by the contents of their litter box. Um, and let's just say she got a little odd with the props in the okay. litter box that the fake feces you know, it was great it was great i mean her her madcap sense of humor is like the female version of tim and eric so right right it's it's perfectly complimentary and so then i would see her like on comedy central one-off specials which were really good and so we kind of had a similar thing where we it's kind of a proto netflix algorithm of if you like this then you'll like that it was like right. the actual human version of that where comedians band together and kind of can introduce you to each other. Maria Bamford, you could run into her anywhere. And it's, it, it would almost be frightening if she started doing her comedy because she acts, her presentation is so unassuming. Right, exactly. She doesn't, Yeah. I mean, she, she looks very, um, what's the word? Sort of unassuming and boring. She's kind She's of like, like a traditionally feminine character. Yeah. What did you say? Yeah, what? Like Midwe- Midwestern pretty. Sort yeah. of like American Pie, wholesome, but like right. you start hearing her talk, and you're like, "What the, f-? you know?" Yeah, which I love that. I love that dissonance. Anything, and that's that's yeah. something is. I think openness is like this this personality trait on the Big Five that has to do with a craving for your priors to be disrupted by humor, which is what you were talking about in that podcast with Suspended Reason, and he of course went into a much lengthier and more academically laden discussion of it but essentially it's like do you it can all so a lot of things can be can be broken down to this constituent element of do you like your priors disrupted or not do you like to get on the roller coaster do you not do you like comedy or do you not and so that's essentially openness right is it's this capacity to enjoy the disruption of your prior predictions and essentially prior predictions get into the body state of interoception like how how heroceptively accurate are you? Can you look at your own, can you count your own heartbeats? So um, a big way that I came to Carl Friston's work on predictive processing and the predictive coding model is through interoception because as a somatic therapist, you look at people's interoception, which is the sense of your own body. And so people with trauma are often frightened by their own accelerating heartbeat because they think that that means they need to go fight or flee and it didn't work for them before. 
And so right. you get in and you get into this interoceptive therapy, which you, any good therapy has that component to it. It's like, can people enjoy ambiguity again? Can they notice their own heart rate without assuming that it means they need to act? And so that ability to, to expand your window of tolerance or your window for tolerating physical sensation before either fighting or fleeing or freezing is really the goal of any trauma therapy. I think trauma is to us what hysteria was to Freud's era, right? Because you had so much bound up neurosis and now you have an over, so you had stimuli, you had a, a, a craving for sexuality and a dearth of sexual material. And so you had some very weird ways that came out. And now we have the opposite where we're totally inundated and traumatized by a surplus of content coming at us at any given time. And so we have to find ways to refocus on the body in right, a way exactly. what's out here. And so that's, uh, that comes to me is really what our therapeutic milieu is now is providing a space where literally people have some quiet. It's a literal space because in their other spaces out in the world, they've got all these inundating systems, either work, which has no real limit to it. Now your phone, you can always be outreached by work, yeah. email, call, FaceTime, Skype, anything I mean, did you see that video circulating on Twitter today? I almost hesitate to give it any more press, but the video of the woman who took the computer with her into the bathroom and filmed herself going to the bathroom because, no, she didn't mean to. So here's what happened was she was trying to watch, and I think she thought she shut her. It would be like if I did that. If I would shut the video off, right? If I, if I had to, for some reason, take my computer with me while I was listening and telechatting with people here, but I think she just forgot to press stop, and so now that's circulating. It's like work. What better metaphor is that than now work follows you into the bathroom, even unwittingly? Oh, I read an article where they were like trying to design a toilet seat. I read that too. So that it would be become uncomfortable to your legs if you sat on it for longer than five minutes because they were worried that like if you poo for too long on company time that they're not extracting the optimum amount of work. Like really, the, the, the creepiest one is Amazon had this video about why workers shouldn't unionize. Right. It is the creepiest fucking 1984 Brave New World. Like, there's like a cartoon character being like, no, you don't need workers' rights. Amazon treats everyone wonderfully. It's like, yeah, that's why there's stories of people like putting in catheters and taping it to their legs so they don't have to go to the bathroom because they need to keep working on their 16-hour shifts. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty. Brutal. So here's the problem you get, I mean, we, it's this world. Well, God, this, the, the impact of coronavirus on working from home and on Amazon employees, they're having to package stuff because nobody's going to stores. I mean, we can only, we can only estimate what kind of a, a, a curve on the graph that would be on people going to brick and mortar. I mean, it would be exorbitant, like the difference between, like the, the increase in Amazon traffic versus brick and mortar. So it's like Amazon can, can become its own country pretty soon. It has the GDP, like, and I'm not pro or con. I mean, it, I order stuff from Amazon. What are you going to do? It's like, it's super get, convenient. I still you can use get away from, I know it's, it's, it, they, they abuse their workers. But. And so you can get away from, from Walmart. You can get away from Target. You can get away from everywhere. And those used to be the devil, right? It's like, you can't get away from Amazon. Whatever you can't get away from, whatever you have yeah. to use becomes the great beast that people lament and for good reason. Sometimes it's like, well, we created that beast because we had these needs and it's like, but, but it got too powerful as our kind of God because 
then it can write its own, it writes its own checks, literally can cash its own, it, it does whatever. And so you get the, yeah, I read the toilet thing. So I was talking to my boss about that. And so I said, yeah, they're going to make that toilet that has that half inch drop or whatever it is where you're strains your legs. Cause that's what you're talking about. I think the same thing I was reading. And so I said, yeah. And in the market, somebody's going to release, they're going to measure that and they're going to release a toilet corrector that employees take to work. And then it's, it's going to be red like, queen theory where everyone's running as fast as they can to screw someone else over or not get screwed. What over. theory is it? The red queen theory. So in, in Alice in Wonderland, it's like you got to run as fast as you can just to stay still. And this is the metaphor they use between viruses and human immune system where like an immune system will evolve a countermeasure against the virus, then the virus will mutate and become, you know, able to reinfect. And so right. everything evolves as fast as they can just to stay still. I would really recommend uh, for people into it, um, pretty much any book by Michael Creighton, but especially the original Jurassic Park. Yeah. And, um, the Andromeda Strain. Fucking excellent, excellent sci-fi books. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, and I want to watch Westworld. I haven't seen it, but I'm ready for yeah. that. Anyway. I've heard season so, one is pretty good. So. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, what do, you, what do you consider trauma? What does trauma look like to you? Do you think it's developmental in nature? Do you think it, because there's this, there's this tendency to give trauma a lot of power and say anything can be trauma, which is, is like the whole stub your toe, that's trauma thing. And you, you may end up being afraid of your own shadow. And then you get this thing of, well, be, what is it? Anti-fragile. I believe in anti-fragility. I believe in making yourself resilient. I wouldn't have this yeah. job if I didn't, but I think there's a middle ground way of looking at trauma is essentially anything that creates maladaptive priors. How about that? That's yeah, I don't I don't like people on the internet who are like, you know, someone called me like a poopy butthole and now I'm traumatized, like someone was mean to me, or like I got yelled at on a bus versus the the other way is like, you know, I saw my friend friends blown up in Iraq and I don't have PTSD. And they try to use that to like uh whatever devalue or or explain away. It, it, it becomes like a weird circle jerk dick measuring contest of like, what's the most fucked up thing you've experienced that you don't have PTSD versus making everything toe stubbing level of potential trauma and becoming like super fragile. So there, there's obviously a, a, a middle ground between those two, which I think makes sense. I like your way of defining it, which is it doesn't really, it doesn't have to necessarily be a specific type of event. Like I remember when, when shell shock, George Carlin has a great bit about the, 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 like the, I forget the phrase he used, the pussification of words or like how they're sucking all the emotion and meaning out of it about how basically shell shock turned into like war fatigue turned into post-traumatic stress disorder became very clinical. But, um, and then there was argument about, you know, can you get PTSD outside of wartime? And then, you know, basically instead of arguing about what the trauma event is, it's just focusing on the after effect, which is the, the sort of permanent state of, of, of flight or flight or, or hyper, um, what's it called? Hypervigilance. Per- permanent vigilance. Yeah, hypervigilance. Yeah. Yeah. So who said that? 
Carl, uh, Carlin? George Carlin had a bit about how words, they're starting to suck all the meanings out of words as yeah. on and out. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I uh, listened to him. Uh, he's definitely a choice comedian. Um, the trauma really is something that restricts lifestyle and creates avoidance. I mean, and so the way EMDR works to alleviate it is through get, so we know the default mode network and listeners, like I'm not going to spell everything about the default mode network, but it's a series of structures that in the brain encourage self-referential thinking. And so you've roughly got three networks and there's this whole very cutting edge approach to EMDR that, that uses the network balance model of trauma and resolution. So it's a mouthful and I've got an article about it, but essentially that there's three broad networks in the brain that constitute our, our, our thinking processes. There's the salience network, the central executive network and the default mode network. And the default mode network is what it sounds like. It defaults. Uh, we default to that. And it's kind of our internal focused daydreaming and thinking about ourselves or going over and over negative cognitions, right? So then you've got the salience network, which can put inordinate salience on either the central executive or it can, it puts salience on the central executive network or the default mode network. So the salience network acts as a master switch. And so with trauma and with negative thinking, salience meaning just like focus. Yes. Yes. And so you get this over focus, like in, in trauma and depression and other things like that, like the, the part of trauma that has to do with priming oneself with negative beliefs is really over reliant on the default mode network. Like if somebody, even when they're out and about trying to do something, they're focused on inward on negative thoughts versus what's going on in the moment. They're stuck in the default mode network. And EMDR helps to jar that with the eye movement or other bilateral side to side stimulation because it's pivots at you, the salience network then pivots toward the executive, the central executive network, which involves the focus on something that's external, right? So yeah. you're having clients think about, so the, the whole goal of the network balance model is to balance those networks, right? Because two, a, a two, uh, monolithic focus on default mode, which includes medial prefrontal cortex, the cingulate cortex, whatever, a, a, a focus on self-referential part processing to the exclusion of out external stuff. Everyone who hears me say that who's ever struggled with overthinking things is immediately going to remember that. Like they're like, Oh, I overthink this. I'm, I'm stuck in my own head. So that phrase being stuck in your own head, you're stuck in your default mode network. So you have mm -hmm. to be jarred out of it. And put that's in what your, art does. That's disrupting your predictive processing. That's what what does that? So so the when talking the suspended reason psychedelics. Yeah, he was talking about psychedelics and art and all of and comedy. Yeah, things that disrupt. You know, if if you're if you're thinking about it in the ice perspective, like your default mode network is the ice crystallized, where you have your high level like beliefs and then the low level subconscious. Yes, art is basically being able to like melt a certain part of the ice cube, and that's what comedy does, which is why people that are very open or are okay having their default mode network uh, disrupted uh, like to listen to a lot of comedy, and that's how art and literature works, and and. Uh, yeah, I, I really like that all of this different stuff is starting to converge on very similar points. 
So, um, but, but yeah. sorry, I was interrupting you. You were, you were going on a fascinating thread about the, the three networks and I want you to send me all these papers. But, oh yeah, uh, I will. You're fine. I don't, I'm not thrown off easily with it cause I have notes and stuff on it. Cause I, I, I'm approaching stuff from a different way. It's different, but still the same as the libidinal theory. So EMDR, let's, let's make the, let's define our vocabularies here because EMDR, I was just thinking about this, posit something called the um, adaptive information processing model that we human beings have an innate tendency toward resolving trauma and realizing, so updating our priors toward refreshing, right? I'm using that lingo here. Right. The model says, and it was, I mean, EMDR was invented by Francine Shapiro when she noticed her eyes darting around, the creator of it, right? She's a psychologist. She noticed her eyes darting around. She felt better while thinking about a negative memory. So she went to study it from there. And it was kind of what we were getting into this whole bottom up stuff and the trial and error of therapy and medicine. And so that EMDR emerged from that. So then it was systematized and it, and it was turned into a comprehensive modality through successive research efforts. And so, I developed a very strange tick when I was in high school, uh, when I uh, was feeling particularly anxious and uncomfortable, where I tapped my fingers very quickly back and forth. Right. I developed it on both sides. It's something I could do in my pockets or just while I'm walking. And like, I was never able to do this. It just like came to me in a particular moment of crisis. Right. And now it's, I don't go back to it all the time. Like it sort of looks like I'm playing an air guitar, but it's just very interesting how, you know, there was the observation of the tapping or the, you know, you're looking up here when you're remembering an uncomfortable story and your eyes are yeah. flitting back and forth and you're doing yeah. the taps. And then you learn that someone else observed this too. And yeah. And have the right background to be like, this is interesting. Let's see if we can get people to do this while recounting because maybe right. this is an adaption to this. This you're connecting the the um, the uh, the not proprioception, the interoception. Yeah, pro interoception, the, proprioception, the, the emotional stuff. Yeah. Link. Yeah, it so is good stuff. We're coming up on two hours. Um, I don't know if you want to take a quick break and maybe run to the bathroom, get something to drink. But um, I can keep going for uh, another hour or so if you want. Um, I definitely want to talk to you about, if you still have time, um, definitely keep touching on, on the Rebus and the three models. Uh, there's also a friend of mine that is dating someone who um, has uh, primary anorgasmia. So this is a, a woman who happens to be who has never experienced an orgasm. And okay. uh, I've, I've been talking to this friend. I found this, this scenario kind of interesting. Right. Um, because I, I would just talk to the, the orgone theory guy. This is not someone who's older and after menopause or taking SSRIs okay. used to be able to and now can't. This is someone who never has. Who's like That's interesting. 20s. So I don't need any, 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 uh, I don't need a break right now. If you want, we you can take if you need to take one, and then we can just like edit it out or something. Yeah, is that okay? Do you mind if I I can be back in like five ten minutes? So Dude, you're I, fine. Yeah, let's do that. If you want, so if you stop the recording now, I can pause it, and then the break I don't have to edit it in. Oh, that's great. Okay, do that. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. 
So I'm going to hit pause and then uh, run to the bathroom and I'll be back in like uh, resume the recording. And I always yep. do like the, the first minute when, when after a pause or when starting a podcast, I always just like make sure it's sort of bad intentionally to like get the jitters out and like get back into the flow of things. I don't know if you've heard the first podcast I did about the, uh, the iGEM project I did with a friend as a genetically engineered machines competition, but like, the first few minutes are just us like spouting nonsense. It's really enjoyable. Sort of being like, you know, unique New York, unique. What do you want to talk about? I'll talk about this. Blah, and then you sort of get it. Sure. So yeah, That's Rebus, uh, uh, primary anorgasmia. Let's, let's talk about both and we're okay. Then, but just get back into it. So, so uh, yeah. Um, Rebus for me, so again, the just for, for listeners out there, it's it stands for relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And it's this idea that um I'm sure anybody hearing this podcast has heard your your previous ones, and it's this idea that uh, psychedelic compounds ease sort of the mental editing process, as we would call it. The sort of taking things for, for granted, certain a priori beliefs um, that restrict and edit incoming stuff and cause there to be some sort of a restrictive bias toward only those thoughts that you that fit in your paradigm. And with trauma, the paradigm is going to be one characterized by avoidance. So there's right. going to be a lot of sort of avoidance of different stimuli that remind one of whatever abuse happened. So if it's triggers, go ahead. What Tri they're called triggers, right? Things Absolutely. Yeah. Of the trauma, they could be like fireworks on 4th of July right. as a common one for people who have, who have experienced warfare. Exactly. That's exactly right. So avoiding loud sounds becomes a priority and that can be, that's a great example because that can be uh, somewhat, I mean, to, to put it mildly, um, ineffective and impractical given, you know, cars backfiring or other things. And you can restrict your environment enough. You can self-select into a restrictive environment a lot of the time, but then that actually creates more avoidance and you're telling your brain that this is something to fear. And so you're strengthening that fear and that prior belief. This is um, why exposure therapy is so effective because you're not training people to be less afraid. You're training them uh, to be more capable in confronting the fear. Right. And so uh, this, uh, that, that's a good point. So EMDR is a form of exposure therapy. And again, it's a virtual exposure therapy that involves imagining. And they studied EMDR in comparison to regular exposure therapy and found that EMDR is more effective. It's not just the exposure. It's something about the mechanical, because they tried to separate the tapping and eyes out. Right. To see if it was just, you know, was the benefit just from talking about the trauma or is there something to the, to the, to the physical stuff? And I right. think I read a paper where they showed that, that it was more effective with the tapping and eye stuff. So very interesting. Yes, it is. It's really awesome. So when we talk about attractor states um, or these sort of thing that we're going toward, um, I'm just going to a quote from the Rebus paper says, within a transient hot state of a psychedelic experience, a flattened landscape, meaning no pry, like priors aren't weighted, like 
flattened the weighting. You've de-weighted certain a priori beliefs, meaning just beliefs you take for granted that are the starting point. Flattened landscape implies the attracting brain states and accompanying mind states. Encoding beliefs are less stable and influential, implying the interstate transitions can occur more freely. So mood transitions can occur more freely when on psychedelics. Now, again, I mean, it goes without saying, but I really want to highlight this is through medical doctors. I don't encourage people play or especially people mm, with fragile point. mental states play around with, with, with unsourced, unquantifiable, unknown quantities of things that they don't know. At your own risk. And it really is. Practice harm reduction with any drug use, not just psychedelics, but like, especially psychedelics. Yeah. Um, right. Exactly. So the, the element of, well, what it is, is it's a recalibration of ego state. It's like if you're identifying or living out of this vulnerable child state, which sounds very fluffy and fantastical, it's not. It means if you're living out of this state of avoidance and supplication of others trying to people please, that is reminiscent of the same sort of nervous system orientation of a child, right? Of really working on reducing, upsetting others, right? There's a, there's a childlike quality to those somatic markers. So Antonio Damasio's somatic marker hypothesis tells us that people sort of orient or move away from different physiological states and the emotions that are entailed, which are what are known as somatic markers. So these markers at different strengths and different places configure personality. And so what, what the relaxation of prior beliefs does through, through psychedelics or through EMDR, because we do that with EMDR too, we take offline these presuppositions, we, we recode them, we reprocess them. It helps people to stop living like a frightened child would or like someone with an extreme fear of, of their boyfriend, like the fear that you would have for a father figure when you're helpless because people have to grow up into their bodies often with trauma. Their brain has stuck in like a five-year-old, not intellectual level, but emotional level where they fear upsetting people because of some nebulous consequence, right? And so people have to realize, wait a minute, I'm an adult. This is, this is something that happens very commonly with people with borderline personality disorder, which is a horrible, sure. horrible disease that I would not wish on my worst enemy. And um, I, I dated someone for a while with this. And, and, and yeah, it was very, very strange cognitive emotional patterns that sure. didn't make a lot of sense, but were developed very early in childhood where... Um, things that you would not expect as being a trigger would right. sort of induce a very childlike, emotional, fragile, and um, tantrum-like state that could not really be uh, reasoned with or talked out of. Or, right. Or like, yeah. So, um, right. That, 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 that is one of the worst mental disorders there is because there is not really any good um, medicines for it and the therapy it's very tricky to establish a uh, a therapist client relationship with people with these disorders because there's a tendency to either put on a pedestal or villainize 
uh, all, all relationships. And so unfortunately, there's a lot of psychiatrists or therapists that just won't take people with that particular condition. Very, sure. uh, very unfortunate. Yeah. Well, so with BPD, I've actually worked with people who have it. I've studied it. Um, I've looked at it for like the, the classical Freudian definition of it is that is what is, is why we know it as BPD. So many people may not know it, may not realize it borderline personality disorder. It's the borderline between psychosis and neurosis. So that's mm. what that name means. There's been talk of renaming it explode like a, emotional dysregulation disorder, which I think would be very helpful it would it would temporarily reduce stigma up until the point that people start using emotional dysregulation disorder as a as a pejorative, which would happen. We need to be realistic about that. It would it would be like, oh no, it's one of those cases, which is sad. I, I don't believe in pathologizing people with their conditions like that. Um, I, I the th- the thing with BPD is it's unresolved trauma usually that manifests in an egocentric way. So it's an over-identification with the traumatized self. So there's a libidinal energy in this, this past harm that was done. And so there, there's a resiliency that's missing there. Oftentimes it's the result of trauma on a relational, like almost exclusively on a relational front where someone feels betrayed. Even if it was sexual abuse in nature, the ensuing lack of support and the lack of a holding space, the lack of a parental environment that says it's okay to be upset, you won't die, your emotions matter, but they're not in control of you, that's lacking. And so you get people who don't know how to regulate because they weren't taught. It's like the cycle. People talk about passing on the cycle or like stopping the cycle of trauma. It often involves teaching people how to better respect emotions without giving in to them. So if you really, that's, that's the biggest element. It sucks. It's the ability to mentalize. I'm, I'm not angry. I'm feeling anger. Sure. Right. Angry. Exactly. Uh, yeah. What therapists who, who work with clients who have BPD have to be very savvy about setting up the, the therapeutic relationship and saying, look, when I call you out on things, I don't hate you as a person. I just want to show you that this behavior is unhelpful. It's unhelpful for you. I care about you, not the people that are hypothetical or secondary to you who you're affecting. So that has to be maintained. There's a therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, and I use it a lot. You've heard about it? Yeah, yeah. So Marsha Linehan is the originator of that. She herself had BPD, was diagnosed with it and everything, and there was a, like, like she started researching what works for it, started including a lot of mindfulness, a lot of acceptance therapy. Well, actually, I think acceptance and commitment therapy came after her. So she's continually refined the curriculum, and there's always a reason for everything in it. And it doesn't spend a lot of time on the cognitive element of arguing whether or not, it does argue whether or not thoughts are true. It doesn't spend a lot of time arguing that events didn't cause your thoughts, that it was your interpretation that caused them. It doesn't waste time on that and says, okay, events can cause thoughts. Then you have to dispute the thoughts. Then you have to do something mindful or different than what you're doing to change your emotions. So it's very tactical, but it's also very validating. Mm -hmm. And I, I, there's never a wrong time to use the skills from that. It's very pliable and malleable to whatever's going on. 
Um, I just prefer, so it's, it's kind of a, a long standing approach that through practice can really go somewhere. I would say it's great for day to day stuff. And then EMDR is great for taking the somatic markers out entirely of these negative experience, these negative memories so that you're not even triggered. You don't even have to use coping right. skills because there's nothing to cope with because you're not triggered. Right. Is exactly. what I would say. So to get back, I know before we left off, I was talking about the AIP model. So with EMDR, there's this model called the adaptive information processing model that says that people essentially want to get over and can get over traumas and orient them to the past, but that sometimes something is, is so shocking or horrifying that it hits this, uh, it, it hits this wall. It's a fragmented memory. It's stored in the body as a as an implicit memory, something that comes up and feels timeless and eternal versus a, a, an episodic memory that's like, okay, this happened and it sucks, but it's over. So the, uh, the EMDR is positive to metabolize that. So it's interesting because you could go this way of like these cathexes are created through traumatizing events. Memory gets a lot of emotion bound up in it. And like this whole thought of I don't deserve something good or this happened to me and this is what I'm worth gets, gets com fed by avoidance and by anxiety. And so an EMDR target and a cathexis are kind of synonymous to an extent for people who kind of need to bridge the gap there between psychoanalysis and EMDR. It's like we're working on these cathexes we're working to take the emotion out and it gets into the orgone therapy because it's moving through the, the bosses, as you've aptly put it, like these sub bosses, like on level one of the different, different um, muscle barriers. Like the, it's very interesting how, how synonymous this stuff can be. Um, but one thing with EMDR though, that's interesting is we believe in doing the first target or the worst target. So instead of just going from the most recent back, which your guest Matt had talked about, you have to start where it is. With EMDR, oftentimes therapists will start with the worst memory, the earliest mm -hmm. one, to like the first memory or the worst one. And oftentimes it'll be a more recent one. That's fine. Um, but it's not all, it, it's, it's oftentimes something deeper. Right. And so the muscle armoring like, is addressed through EMDR by asking, where do you feel that memory in your body? What are you noticing? And you ride through the re-experiencing of it with the client with the bilateral eye movement, which triggers delta waves and makes the memory pliable and you're abreacting it out, but also putting it in its place where it's not just this re-traumatization of feeling the memory without getting rid of it. And just for people that, the listeners that don't know, the difference between catharsis and, and cathexis. Okay. Well, a catharsis is an, uh, well, it's different because one's a noun and one's a verb. So catharsis is the... Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, no, you're fine. A catharsis is the experience of strong emotion. It's synonymous with abreaction, which is also... So catharsis can be a noun or a verb, but like there's like a, a cath going through catharsis. Oh, so never mind. It's a something um, cathartic. It's a noun. Is like I've I, it's emotionally result. It's very emotional, but it, it it to me it signifies like a resolution. It does like releasing of energy that's been pent up. So you're right. It does. That's exactly what it is. So catharsis is 
um, a, a very synonymous with abreaction. They're both nouns that mean essentially reacting, letting go of something. Catharsis is often thought of as a, a kind of tearful, emotional feeling, almost like the grief that the resolute the the resignation of the fact that someone is gone, for instance, and the crying of it and mourning that. So grief work is often referred to kind of with that, like going through catharsis or like, and also other, other sadness kind of variants there, which it doesn't only apply to, I'm just saying in our popular culture, abreaction is seeming to me seemingly more universally used for any kind of emotion, like acting out pent up anger, sadness, sexual impulse, anything, mm-hmm. but they're pretty synonymous. So a, a cathexis is, and I am not an expert at psychoanalysis. I'm conversational with it, but not to the point where I would go for the metaphor, like to the whole country of psychoanalysts and think that I can hold my own. I mean, there's some amazing concepts that I know can, that I can kind of scratch the surface, of, especially with Lacanian mm-hmm. analysis. Um, but there's so many different languages out there with, with psychoanalysis. But a, a cathexis is a, an emotional, essentially hot spot. It's, a, it's something that receives a lot of energy. You would invest and, the energy into it. Yes, yes, yes. Like a, like a sinkhole of like a, an emotional um, knot or something that a lot of energy is given to. It's like a lot of the blood being diverted to it. Um, and it can be kind of like that cancerous tumor analogy that I'm thinking of now. I just have to make it explicit. It's like sometimes it takes a lot of libidinal energy, which is a standard for blood, and it starts to develop and you have to shrink this and then really eliminate it completely, excise it if it's a maladaptive cathexis that's bound up in something like um, sadism that helps you to act out being the oppressor and identifying with the abuser versus being the victim, right? It's like, well, where's that coming from? If someone wants to get over that, there's a good prognosis. But if they don't, then, well, you're forced, you can't force therapy, you know, which is another thing. You can't, a lot of these groups, like for anger management, someone will only anger, <laughs> someone will only manage their anger if they want to. You can teach them anything right. they want, but if they don't practice it, it's not going to work. So, um, a, a, a cathexis is just an emotional complex. It's a strong, like an example would be a hang up on being, a, a, it, it's a very nebulous term, but an example could be like a blanket could be one, um, like a, a, a transitional object that you put a lot of emotional, uh, resi- a sort of emotional energy into, and then like a, a hang up on getting your parents' attention if you didn't. Like, so that's kind mm-hmm. of a, a more abstract version. And so healing that through, and viewing it as an EMDR target, like notice what it feels like to know now that your mom doesn't approve of you, hasn't. Someone, like, someone who has a chip on their shoulder. Is, yeah. Is putting a lot of cathexis into a particular particular idea. Sure, absolutely. And, and it involves a lot of, yeah, it's where this energy is going. And you can say trauma induces those. And it's, it's very apparent that, that there's it's the energy, the emotional, libidinal energy is being, your life force is being diverted into protecting yourself from something that very well may never, never happen again, right? And so that's part of the issue there with trauma is not that 
it's like a good way to look at how, how much trauma is affecting someone is how much are they avoiding? How much are they out of the game of life and out of doing things they wish they could be doing? And so that's why it's like, well, how do you know what's trauma and what's healthy? I mean, someone who's not a trained high wire walker is not going, I wouldn't say that it's trauma that gives them a fear of heights, right? Now, if they have such a phobia of, of heights that they can't ride an elevator, well, then now we have a problem because it's getting in the way and it's an inordinate fear. But something like there's healthy fear, which is more kind of just caution. And then there's unhealthy fear that's either a result of phobia or trauma, which is just a firsthand experience, really. What's yeah, getting interesting yeah. now is that people have, people are developing fears based on videos they're watching and different YouTubers I've talked to have seen horrible video footage that's real and it's actually caused some traumatic reactions. And I think that's valid because we so, weren't really. So people on Google or YouTube that have to clean up videos. Like yes. Violate terms of service that are like particularly violent or, or right. screwed up. Those people a lot of times they need therapy because they yes. stuff that's just horrible. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. And so I saw that there was a vice video on that. And mm. I think the pay is relatively little and the mental exposure is exceedingly high. And so that kind of job is one that really you could benefit from some sort of mandated, like some sort of on the job therapeutic break on a regular basis to kind of clear out the cash, clear out the history, so to speak, in your memory for this stuff. Because we know this brings me to another good point. Traumatic memory is very pliable. And if you do within the first six months, if you go get some EMDR to reconsolidate these memories, there's like a, a higher, like it's a very, it's an optimal time to do that. Mm, interesting. Okay. So if you can do that, if you have a job that's really stressful and you can't get out of the job and you can't and you don't, or you don't want to, which is the case for a lot of first responders who have a heart for that stuff, then at least, and that's, and I get it, like we have to have people doing that. I'm not so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good to use a kind of Southern colloquialism. They're like, we have to have people doing that stuff. So what you have to do is protect yourself and right. start to clear out the history and get rid of it and then go back in. It's like, well, okay, I'm not seeing this as clearly. That's another good thing about EMDR is it's very atheoretical because the whole, it's just, it's based on clearing out the vividness of negative memories. That's the goal. One of the EMTs that I trained under, um, she was very good at handling almost any type of, of scene or scenario. The one thing she did not do and other people she worked with would make sure that she didn't have to handle these cases was anything to do with, with kids. Right. Like kid got hurt because she was a mother and she's like, I, right. I don't need that in my, in my cash, in my, in my memory bank. And so they would sort yeah. of work together and say, okay, like we'll take this one and you can take the scene that whatever involves like a burn victim. If someone has like a, has like a, a really strong, uh, you know, didn't, didn't, you know, wanted to avoid that particular scene. So that's very savvy of her. I mean, there's an extent to which you can and can't do that. Right. So if you right. can do it, that's helpful because you're not set, you're not needlessly setting up prior beliefs, which at that point they're not probably, they're not beliefs yet. You're not, you're not establishing beliefs about what could happen to your kids that likely won't. So you're not going to then become an overreactive, anxious parent just through your work. I mean, it's intelligent 
And it's interesting. I think we can have a, a healthy view toward things like how what how worth it is it to keep your kids out of certain situations. Well, I would argue that up to a certain age, like them going to the bathroom alone is probably pretty rough. And if you're an opposite sex parent, it's like, well, what are you going to do? You send them in there alone and wait by the door. Well, that's probably a pretty good option. So you got to, you got to kind of determine what is a healthy skeptical fear and what's not. And, and how much right. do you want to add? Well, it's not enough that I stand there by the door because there may be a back door in the bathroom and they're kidnapped out of there. It's like, okay, now that now we're getting into some nearly delusional kind of beliefs that serve no purpose and turn healthy, cautious parenting into a sort of psychotic fear. parenting, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I want to be careful, though, because it's a lot easier. Like, it, your, the, your brain calculates that it's better to be anxious than it is to be stupid, which evolution would seem to suggest is accurate because anxiety would have been weeded out far long ago if there weren't some use for it. So I think a heavy level of, I think, I think a healthy level of skepticism is, is well, adaptive we know that but getting going overboard into chronic stress that comes from anxiety that's where we want to cut that off so our our ancestors were the ones that saw a shift in the grass and said that's probably a tiger right versus the ones who were like yeah the, the odds are low right because those people to a lesser greater extent got got weeded out so we're predisposed to be a little more anxious and paranoid than maybe we need to be because that's what we needed for survival. Mm-hmm. But um, to give a recent example, how casually some people are treating this coronavirus is an example where people are not anxious enough versus people that are paranoid about the bathroom thing or, or kidnapped kids, you know, Kids are much more likely to be, um, whatever, attacked by someone they know personally. Yeah. Then a now stranger, getting, stranger danger is like super, super rare. Well, now you're getting into the discomfort of acceptable trauma. So the worst cases that you can see as a therapist, the most painful ones are not, I mean, they are, I want to be very careful with my phrasing here. What makes a case more painful? That's the way I'll put it is if a parent tells a child, no, you're wrong, you weren't molested, your uncle would never do that to you. Stop telling lies. So I've had clients who have been basically, not basically, who have been told that they they were wrong and that something didn't happen. And there was that mystification is a clinical term for it. Gaslighting is the term that now has, has taken off. Um, Mystification is the term used by the anti-psychiatrist R.D. Lang, L-A-I-N-G. He was a good guy, letter R, letter D, and then Lang. There's a movie about him that I've been meaning to watch that came out a few years ago. But so the idea, people used to think that, that, that it was such a problem that schizophrenia was caused by having a mother, there's some sexes in there, that told you you weren't experiencing things. And so you never trusted your perceptions and you became schizophrenic. That's a very psychoanalytic view of it. And we know it's wrong. We know there's a strong genetic component to schizophrenia. But what we also know is that being told, no, so that it's like which evil comes out of it, right? So we know it doesn't cause schizophrenia, but we know that that can cause severe self-esteem and um, body 
ownership issues where you don't trust your body, you don't trust your perceptions, you have severe insecurity because no one believed you and you weren't worth believing. And so then we get into there's that sort of denial, weaponized denial from a parent as, a, as something against a child, which infinitely amplifies how painful sexual abuse is. Because there's actually cases I've worked with where people have had horrible abuse, but their parent immediately pressed charges, took them out of the negative situation, saved them. And, and it's like, okay, now I know the world is not always safe, but I also know that I'll always have an out. I will have someone in my corner. And then when I grow up, I will be the person in my corner. And I am confident I can do this. So you internalize the parent state. That's the ultimate goal of parenting is you teach your kid to internalize what you do for them. It's a very, very sacred role. But the coronavirus thing is an example of behavioral activation gone wrong, right? So you get people who are going places and they're doing behavior and then their, their brain is saying, okay, well, I'm going out and I'm seeing everything's fine. I'm fine. Nothing's happening. Like you can't see the germs for God's sake, of course. The people who are very much on the side of just do it and just in the face of anything act normal. There's a, there's a, a sort of denial there. That's why I'm thinking of denial. And I started applying it to that trauma story um, because you're denying that something's going on. And for the time being, that can be very powerful. So if you're in a war zone and you're in full denial, then you'll get hit by a bullet. But if you're kind of like narrowing your focus to saving your comrade, not thinking, well, what, what if I run out and get shot? It's like, well, you run out and save them and you've survived. Both of you have. So there's a good, there's a facet to putting off feeling until after the fact that I think we underestimate its usefulness. It's useful. However, right. being putting your head in the sand and being in denial during a pandemic is a different kind of putting off of emotion. It's very maladaptive. There's no utility to that because this might be a chronic situation that we have to adapt to. And the young people, so we've got like this, this cocktail of issues of it's typically people on spring break saying, Oh, well this got in the way of my spring break. Well, okay. That's understandable that you would mourn the loss of your break and people have gone on break and got sick with it. It's like, well, that's really, yeah, or what's more worse is like the, the, the risk for young people is, is, is lower. It's not right. non-existent. There are young people that are still dying, but it's right. more that they get it and their symptoms are mild and they don't take it seriously. And then they're spreading it to their grandparents or to older people in the neighborhood with maybe pre-existing conditions. Those are the people that die. Like, coronavirus in terms of the number of deaths it's already been like 10 10 or 20 like 9-11s like just imagine like the towers coming down every week for four weeks yeah well and people can't see it you just illuminated you just illustrated why it isn't seen with the urgency though it didn't happen rapidly it's a slow burn there's no video of that stuff there's no, right. like, it, it's not, the video of someone dying over a few weeks is not as compelling as seeing the buildings crash. And look, this is where we're separating high empathy and low empathy on a situational scale, just to be quite frank. Immediately, if you think, I won't die of this, but I could transmit it, and you don't think of family or that, that someone else, older people are someone else's family, and you're fine with that. There's a lack of empathy there. And I want to be generous and say that for younger people under 25, that's understandable. I think once you hit about 16, 17, you should probably have the real beginnings of a good empathic system. 
in your, in your, your limbic system. I mean, people are sheltered from that now to an extent through screens, but I, or, or at least a compassion system, compassion, compassion system. Yeah. One or the other. Yeah. And, and the fact that we could call it a morality too, an ethic because there's that word again, but the ethics, when you're young, you have to be externally shown rules that you then internalize. And then when your, your empathy system comes online, you see the usefulness for, right? So there's the problem. And you've got like, Italy is, is a good case study because I was, I was talking to family and uh, my mom was saying that it's the, the, the research might, is showing that it's this, this multi-generational nature of Italy's households. And so you've got the, the elderly living with potentially like four different generations there or three at least. And so you get like grandkids who are out and about milling around who come in and contaminate the grandparents and kill them off. And so it's very morbid to think about. But when you have that level of closeness on a physical and emotional level, Right. It's like, even at that point, like you think, oh, just, just separate everybody. Well, that's easy to think, but then you think how emotionally painful that is and how people will roll the dice on being infected or not. And we know what happened. We, we see how many people rolled the dice wrong on that. So it, the, I have nothing but empathy for it. And I think we should look and see how that happened in Italy and how in the U.S. people are more like the generations are a little more diffuse. You've got the elderly in nursing homes. You've got I mean, so of course, Italy is not like a, a, a nation back thousands of years ago. They have the same kind of systems in place, but maybe the multi-generational household element, I think. So, so I'm half Italian and I'll, I'll just tell you right now. Like, yeah, of course. This is, yeah, I want to hear from you. Kids stay at home. They live with their parents for much longer than in America. In America at 18, they kick you out of the house. You go to school and then you, you're in a totally different city. And right. you Skype your parents once a month or something. Whereas in Italy, like it's pretty unusual for you to not go to university at, in your local city. Like, like my mom lived with her parents until she was 25 after medical right. school, she came to the States. My uncle lived with, with his, uh, with his mom up until her death. So, I mean, they were, they were in the same household forever. Right. Yeah, you were talking about multi-generational households, maybe not necessarily if it's like an apartment building, you know, like the, 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 the sons and daughters will have their own families in a separate, like part of the building and right. parents maybe live upstairs, but you could apply it to a house where like, yeah, you have the grandparents, uh, the parents, the kids, and then the kids that are starting to have kids. So you can have all these different levels and the, the social needs of someone who's 12 or, or 24 or 40 is going to be different than someone who's 70 right or 80 and um did i lose you i think we lost them hold on all right i didn't see it oh <laughs> uh, no uh, worries sure so you caught it though you recorded it right yeah i caught it so okay. i just restarted the recording so we should be good Okay, so let's. So you were get cut off right when you were talking about multi-generational families. Just the point that Italy got hit very hard because they are, uh, uh, as a people, very warm and affectionate towards people. You know, friends. They do the kiss on the cheek. They do happen to to live in these households where everyone sort of lives together. 
Right. And, um, you know, while the health system in the north is, is quite okay, down south, it's, it's not bad. And I think that they did not go the route that, that Korea and Japan did, which was extreme social distancing and, and sort of, you know, in, in the Far East, they, you know, it's very common to see the face masks on everyone, even without it a break. And, and just sort of this like particular obsession with hygiene that, that um, you know, I think uh, in Korea or Japan, there was a day recently where they didn't record any new cases. Like it, it, it seems that they might be turning the corner on, right. on, um, on limiting this outbreak to, to just 1% of the population. Whereas I see people in, in the States on, you know, mainstream news media, which is fucking garbage, but they're like, we're going to have to quarantine for nine months and 80% of people are going to get it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Either we quarantine for nine months or you just accept that everyone's going to get it. 80% of people are going to get it. You don't do both. That's absurd. That's not worth it at that point. If you just assume that everyone's going to get it, then don't fucking quarantine people. But the reason you quarantine is so that nobody gets it. So people, I'm just annoyed by the fact that these, you know, so-called experts in the room are like, oh, face masks don't work. It's just like the flu, you know, you know, cough into your, you know, your, your church pews to screw the liberals or whatever. Like it becomes weirdly political. And I, I yeah, well, I'm it, saying it's just one side, by the way, it's, it's anytime life and death comes up and fear comes in people's values and political systems also come up so it makes sense on a on a limbic system scale i mean that's kind of the heuristic everybody has a different lingo when it comes to psychological terminology like libido is was matt's terminology for that right so it's like libidinal energy going into stuff for me i often use the heuristic of the vagus nerve or the limbic system. So when people are activated. Yeah, your monkey brain or your lizard brain. Yeah, the mammalian brain is the fight or flight response. The lizard brain is freezing and being and like primal brain stem function. And so the mammalian, because you think about it like in terms of primates and the mammalian sort of intertribal mobilized essential warfare going on and that's kind of an easier way to think about it. Um, like a, a heuristic way of thinking about it. So it's like when someone goes into limbic mode, if they're very going back to BPD, if it's really a quickness to go into a limbic system defense mode and people can be so shocked because they don't think that they're not attacking the other person, the person who has BPD, but the person with the disorder feels hurt or attacked in ways that the other person didn't intend. And so you get this very narrow window of tolerance when you want to expand that and stop the limbic system from going into hyperdrive so quickly. And that's where bottom up therapy goes. It's like um, an Uberton's window for emotional reactions. It is. It is. It's like a kid when you're like, yeah, you can't eat chocolate right now because it's yeah. before dinner. You don't want to, and they're like, you're personally attacking me. Why can't I right. eat chocolate? That's so let's that, that absolutely. So I know let's be mindful of time on your end. I want to, I want to address that question of like the sexual disorder thing just for the, that you were going to ask me. Yeah. So we can talk a little bit more offline, but um, like, sure. I oh, saying, okay. We can do that then. That's fine. A, a friend of a friend um, basically has uh, 
this particular woman has never had an orgasm and she's 24 or 25, I think. Um, she's had a few sexual partners. Um, she has, let's say, practiced with herself and uh, does not have any prior history of, of, of sexual abuse, uh, does not take any sort of SSRIs or um, doesn't seem to have anything that would be like the first thing you checked in a doctor's office. Right. And again, primary is different than secondary. Secondary is women who have had the ability to orgasm, but then after menopause or after taking some sort of medication have lost it. Or, or, and it's different from, from uh, being low, uh, low libido. Like right. This, this right. particular person still enjoys sex a lot, but once after the buildup of energy, um, the, the metaphor or analogy that was used is that it's like unplugging a computer. So you build up and instead of discharging that energy through the like body convulsions and waves of pleasure and all the neurotransmitters being released, it's like starting from the beginning. It's like you unplug the computer and you're like just doing taxes. And um, I guess they can still keep going but, and build back up to that but there's, there's never an actual release. It's just sort of this, it's weird. It's like the energy goes away, but it's not discharged. It's very strange. I've never heard of anything like it. Right, right. So you're getting into some psychoanalytic explanations, it sounds like, for biological phenomena, which I think can, there's, there's definitely room for that. Um, it's a language I'm not as familiar in. I don't, don't know where... Well, really, I'm familiar with the language, but I don't know what prognosis or prescription that would be besides addressing kind of the, the going back and, and doing some free association and looking at maybe what's holding back that expression there of, of libidinal orgasmic energy. So at that point, if, if there is no... Okay. So if it's not an issue with the technique being used during the process of, of lovemaking. No, so my first recommendation, which I recommend to every person, you know, straight, gay, whatever, is like go about and get a Hitachi or other type of vibrator. It's the most amazing tool, the magic wand. You'll, people have thanked me. Hitachi owes me a, a couple of bucks for going out and promoting for them. But like, sure. Yeah, they, the, yeah. this particular, they've tried a lot of different things. Uh, technique there's not a, it's not an issue with technique uh, right i'm getting I, I that know from my friend he's he's yeah no so it sounds like it so the issue might be with some anxiety and some kind of perform like some hyper focus on the other person or on doing it right or on something so a good sex therapist and someone to do because it will be this kind of thing for men if they're losing their arousal kind of like a, a yeah a, it, to me i was like it sounds like maybe a control issue or anxiety and yes like you that somehow need to get into a, a place of really deep relaxation almost like a trance state maybe or like hypnosis yeah. might help yes and, and then affirming that it's okay to let go and it's okay to feel good. Right. Even though it, there doesn't seem like there was any sort of, um, you know, sexual badness that has happened, maybe unconsciously that has been associated 
Like, right. I, I right. can't I agree. myself feel that good because that would be a form of being out of control and I need to feel, this is just, my, you know, I'm, I'm just spitballing at this point. Well, I think some EMDR, I think some going to a sex therapist to maybe do some exercises would be a good, would good, be a good move. Just something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because this stuff is like sort of taboo in American culture. For as much as we talk about sex, I think Americans like really deep down inside as a culture are quite puritanical. Whereas the Italian, this is my only comparison, but I'll say Europeans in general, don't talk about sex as much, but they're way more open about like, I don't know, they're just more, there's still a weird feeling of like, tabooness in sex or like not being like I'll, I'll i'll put it this way so one of my roommates is brazilian okay she talks about the difference in hookup culture in brazil versus america brazil is very open very warm you can meet someone at a bar and in two minutes start making out with them right or go home and sleep with them but um when you're with that person she describes you love them even if even if you know it's just for one night or that it's not going to go anywhere you can still love someone even even if 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 it's mostly a physical thing you know even if it's mostly an erotic love you can still have a um a platonic love right in the u.s a lot of times uh it seems that hookup culture is just a physical almost robotic act Right. And it's not even erotic love. It's it's almost like masturbating with someone else. And it is there's like a total separation of of any sort of platonic or or uh, I'm forgetting all the Greek terms for love, but um, you know, yeah. Like there's no it's, feel. It's not filial. It's it's eros without philos or any yeah, of the kind of like yeah. That. Well, and I think that gets to. It's like loving yourself. It's getting someone in the act to love you or to physically satiate you versus enjoying the person on all levels. And I think it gets into, on some level, people may think that it's wrong in America. So they so quarantine everything but the mechanical aspect of it that they don't, that they don't allow themselves to experience any empathy for others. Or it could just be also that there's... I mean, you'd have to look at the at the libido economy of the U.S. versus Brazil to get into some of those terms and see what sort of things are viewed as taboo here. And I think silly sort of attachments are now taboo where it's like considered silly to immediately fall in love with someone. If it's lust, that's fine. But if you gain an attachment, you're seen as kind of silly. It's weak. Naive. Exactly. Weakness. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a Which huge is horrible part. because some of the my best you know fling relationships were like crushes remember feeling like a crush on someone you know which you know after high school you're like oh i can't have a crush on but yeah you can have a crush on someone right and i think a big part of that is culture I, I, to pivot back to that you were talking about how it italian culture you have the multi-generational family i think when it comes to southern culture which i know we talked about yesterday on the phone you lived in Nashville. I my, am my orig- dad is Southern, so uh, yeah, I got a lot of love for the South. And I'm originally from South Carolina and lived there for almost my entire teen years, up up until that point. I mean, so I I, I really know a lot about that. And there's some more multi generational 
family dynamics there. It's not as cold and, you know, get kicked out at a certain age. Now, there's its own problems, I know. I'm aware that it's its own ecosystem of, of ills, but they're different than the they sort of- different, and, and yeah. you're right. New England is, like, when I moved up to upstate New York, up in Rochester, the first few things I had to learn besides dropping my accent so I wouldn't get bullied is, like, how to swear and call teachers by their first names instead of sir or ma'am or, you know, Mr. Whatever. And yeah, yeah, just like a general like coldness and not just the weather, just like the people are a little more frigid. Um, It's sort of like the difference between like Germans and Italians. Germans are very sort of mechanical and and whereas Italians are like, you know, they can't follow rules or cue in a line, but they're very warm and, you know, we'll cook you good food. So (laughs) It's, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's definitely different. It is. It's interesting. Well, we can, if we want to wrap up, we can wrap up for now. Yeah. So I don't want to go too long. This was an awesome, awesome, uh, awesome session. And I know we still have a lot to talk about, so we can save that for, for round two. Uh, sure. Absolutely. Two. Um, where can, can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Fox Therapy LLC. They can find my podcast, The Fox Den. Um, if you look up Fox Den and then you put in the word Fox Cast, you'll find my podcast pretty quickly because they're like I have in there in the description, like it's a Fox Cast in quote. So that's like, if you put your, your podcast. So what I'll do in the description is link to maybe the Exiting Modernity podcast, which, yeah. is, uh, which was really good. Or, or, sure, thanks. Uh, we'll start with that and uh, put the Twitter handle in there and some of the papers that we referenced. Um, yeah, is there anything else you, you want to tell the people? Uh, no, just look for upcoming videos. I'm also on YouTube at the Fox and you can link to that because there's a few other channels with the name. And again, I may change the name, but um, I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff on YouTube with taking apart negative perceptions of uh, trauma, mental health myths, things that keep people in the dark about good mental health practice and that can make them feel alienated. I mean, it's about time. So yeah. for somebody to get there and do that. So they'll, they'll find me on YouTube, Twitter and the podcast. So if anybody can think of good guests to have on, then I'm more than happy to, to hear that. So yeah, for sure. And if you want to talk to uh, to uh, Matt or Suspended Reason, um, I can definitely uh, uh, you know link you up with them. I would love to to hear you guys chat about this sort of stuff. But um, listen, it was a pleasure, Jeremy, Mr. Fox. Uh, Thank you, stay, Mr. White. Stay, stay safe out there. You know, I know quarantine is sort of tough to respect, but uh, this is a good time to to do some some good Southern cooking. And uh, that's right. And, you know. Do, do some podcasts at home with podcasting. So, all right. So, take it easy. Thank you.